You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. distant future and the empire of the stars is in the balance on one side is mankind on the other are the Drax but the struggle that continues across the galaxy may find a solution On a desolate planet. Here, a new hope will be forged. Here, sworn enemies, killers. Must learn to survive. Together. The point is, Draco, whether we live or die, I don't love you and you don't love me. Created by the effects team that brought you Return of the Jedi and the director of The Never-Ending Story. This is a tale of friendship. Of courage. New life. And new ideals that must be fought for. I'm going back. Enemy mine. The future of a galaxy rests on a promise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Ms. Corinne Luz. Thanks for having us on again. It's good to hear from you. Also back in the booth is Mr. Tim Luz. Thank you. Happy to be back. This week, we are discussing the 1985 film from Wolfgang Peterson, Enemy Mine. Based on a novella by Barry Longyear, the film stars Dennis Quaid as Davidge and Louis Gossett Jr. as Jerry. These two are of different races, one human, one drac, who find themselves stranded on a very hostile world. We will be headed straight into spoiler territory as we discuss this film, so if you haven't seen it, turn off the podcast and come back. We will still be here. So, Corinne, I have to ask, when was the first time you saw Enemy Mine, and what did you think? So, it was the glories of the HBO days. It probably was 86 or 87, because it, it needed some time to get to HBO before I saw it. My mom, of course, lets me watch everything, or she did. So I saw it as a child, six or seven. I loved it. But I was a Star Wars kid, so anything that was aliens or or space creatures, I was totally down for. And 
it's one of those films that I still have a nostalgic feel for, though seeing it as an adult, it has its challenges. How about you, Tim? Very similar. It was also HBO in the glory days of catching movies on there. Uh, I do remember as a kid being a little surprised. The promos made it look like it was going to be a lot more of these two uh, enemies making fun of each other for a lot of the movie. And I wasn't sure if I was interested in that. But once I saw it, I loved it, especially uh, a little spoilery as we get into the middle of it. And Lou Gossett Jr. is just out midway through the movie. And you realize the movie's turning into something entirely different than it was originally sold as. I loved that. I thought it was fantastic. I can't remember if I saw this in the theater. I would have been 14, 13 when this came out. I think this was also an HBO special for me and just seeing it again and again and again and not realizing until we started doing research on this movie, it never dawned on me that there was an actual mine in this movie. I know. <laughs> yeah. I went with the the long year title and I was just like, oh, yeah, enemy mine, my enemy. OK, cool. And then finally, it's like, oh, wait, no, there's a mine in here. So when I was a kid, it made perfect sense there was a mine because enemy mine. I didn't know the language in a way that enemy mine meant my enemy at six or seven. <laughs> so having a mine was great if you're a kid. And if this had been marketed as a kid's film, um, you know, slightly changed. So it's not quite so dark, but it worked for me as a kid. As an adult, it's hysterical. I remember as a kid being very confused. They focused on that for the title, thinking, you know, it was just the mine from the third act. It wasn't until I, I did read the Barry Longyear's story years later that I realized, oh, there's no mine in this. Oh, it means that. Okay, that makes much more sense. I felt so stupid. <laughs> when Longyear, you'll hear in the interview later on, Longyear brings up, like, they had to put a freaking mine in here. And I was just like, oh, yeah, there is a mine in this movie. <laughs> yes. And that it, it's uh, rumored to be a producer's note as hysterical. That would so make sense. <laughs> I totally agree. This this worked really well when I was 13. And yeah, watching it now as a 48-year-old, I'm like, yeah, there's a couple issues here and there. I think the biggest is just towards the end, there's a real abrupt change that happens. And we'll definitely talk about that. But there are definitely some tonal shifts that happen in here, and I forget that Lou Gossett Jr. doesn't even make it till halfway through the movie. Because he's so distinctive. That character is just, I mean, I would say iconic alien, even if the film isn't as successful. He's one of the first people that I think of actor-wise who has just embodied a different species. And even when he's gone, I feel like his performance kind of casts a shadow over the rest of the movie. You just can't really forget about him, even when he's not on screen. His mannerisms, the way he moves his head when he's oh, looking yes. at things, just everything about his performance is just remarkable. Well, he reportedly did a lot of physical therapy and worked a lot with different strength exercises so he could get this completely animalistic form like a, a a recognizable as a creature but still totally moving alien some of it is very snake-like and he crouches a lot so as an actor he went through physically quite a bit to get that performance and for me just the way he speaks the speech the little inflections that he gives those bizarre noises he makes i feel like it's really hard for an actor to pull off what sounds like a truly alien form of of language and he really hits it also, speaking of his ability to act through makeup, 
I mean, that was amazing. This last time we watched it, I paid really close attention to how he emotes through all that makeup. I mean, he he's like 99% makeup. And then the lenses on top of it. So being able to emote just through his lips, what he can do with his eyes and body gesture, it's just fantastic. Oh, to read in his autobiography, just the pain that he went through with those stupid contacts yeah. and just oh. how awful that was. And this was before we had like soft lenses or anything comfortable so that he had, he had three layers. I think it was three layers of contacts and then they were able to reduce it to two. I just wouldn't be able to do it physically. <laughs> I, I got to hand it to him. I remember being surprised that here's an actor who just comes off of winning an Oscar and his thing is to play an alien and to take it completely seriously and to really put us all into it and to go through that discomfort for it. That's just really admirable. Well, and to shoot the movie almost twice. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In unforgiving conditions both times. I really remember the space battles in this movie, though the, the, it's only on screen for, what, five, ten minutes at most? Yeah, there, there's one battle, basically. And, and and again, yeah, as a kid, it was like, okay, well, there's the big space battle, and then they're on the planet, and they have to survive against monsters, and that's great. So for me, the movie ended, as in my memory, it ended with uh, the birth of Zamis. So space doesn't figure in as much. It's more of a backdrop to the story than it is an actual part. I do feel like those still hugging that sort of post-Star Wars glow. They're like, we've really got to get this big space battle right up front and get as much in there as we can. It's pretty good. I mean, it's uh, industrial light magic again, so it looks great. I will say the sound effects for that battle scene kind of take me out of it. They're a little too cheesy for me. They're pretty broad. <laughs> Gotcha. Atta boy. Yeah. Six more bandits on three. Need to copy that. Roger, I go to. I guess I thought we didn't see him. Well, I sure as hell didn't see him. Did anybody see him? I see him now. And we're put into Davidge's head right away. He is the one that gives us an opening narration. Apparently, at first, it was going to be a scroll on the screen. But we follow him in because he narrates this thing all the way up until the last little bit of narration, which comes from somebody completely different that we don't know and have never heard their voice before. Mystery omnipotent narrator. I thought it would have been better if that last bit of narration was a Drock speaking it. I thought that would have made a lot more sense. That actually. would have. That would have been good. And there would have been another Drock that knows English apart from Jerry and Zamis. And kind of showing that there is a slow change on, you know, on the way. Uh, I actually have a big problem with the structure of the film. The intro voiceover doesn't work for me. I mean, you're already telling me that the character has survived and we haven't even started the film. That's true. Yeah. And that's a pet peeve of mine. I find it interesting going through the script that it was actually supposed to be a flashback that we start with him. The, the scene that comes, what, two thirds of the way through when he is almost being buried in space and wakes up like that's supposed to be the beginning of the movie. And that would have been an amazing open. Uh, one of the times we watched it this last time, I paid attention to that scene in particular. Can you imagine the cold open of just seeing a space wreath dumped out with a body and the possibility of, you know, we're just starting in basically a funeral home. And I think that would have changed the tone of the film overall, but also fit sequentially better. I think it also would have made us care for 
some of those other characters, his his uh, fellow soldiers, and especially this whole thing of who <laughs> the people who show up for like thirty seconds, right, yeah. right, yeah, and yeah, then at the end, work. really quick, because they are just MIA, and this would have been him being kind of reformed and they would show like him with the beard and then he's clean shaven and then won't talk to anybody. And then his friends are the ones that are like, Hey, you can trust us. You can tell us the story. And then we begin. And as a hook, as a hook to see that he's been through so much, we want to know what he's been through. And to introduce that idea, oh, maybe he was working for the enemy. Maybe he's a spy now since he's speaking drunk. What does it mean? Where, where did he come to learn this? Like you said, it would have actually given those characters something else to do because otherwise we just see them really quickly. It's almost like passing these people by in the hallway. We didn't even need them in the film as it exists right now. It would have been just as successful. He could have spoken to even the people at the funeral home. Like There really was no purpose for them. I feel like, especially with one scene cut out that we'll probably get to, they could have served a more interesting purpose in contrasting what Davidge could live in the life he could have and the life he chooses instead. But we'll get into that probably later. So I want to talk about the plot overall. And even when this came out, there were comparisons. I can't remember if it was Starlog or where it was, but there was a sidebar where it was like, if enemy mind seems familiar, it's because it is just like Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And I went back and I watched Robinson Crusoe on Mars and I was like, yeah, there's some similarities. Yeah, I can kind of see this, but the Martian character and the human character, they are both humanoids, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it's pretty easy. And then, really, the human character, he doesn't necessarily treat this new Friday, if we're talking Robinson Crusoe, he doesn't treat him necessarily as a slave or anything. And it, it, it just it didn't ring true for me. What I really found was this fit better into the mold of, like, Hell in the Pacific or some of the uh, what we call elevator episodes from TV shows where characters who don't get along get stuck in an elevator and learn about each other. There was an episode of Planet of the Apes TV show called The Trap, where it is one of the human characters and one of the gorillas, General Urso, possibly. I can't remember. But they get trapped underground, and they have to work together and there's a really interesting moment where they, uh, since they are underground, they're in a subway station and there's a poster for the circus and there's a picture of a gorilla in a cage. So it's this whole like, see what we've come through, all this kind of stuff. That's what this film feels like to me. Put two enemies together on a planet or an isolated location and let them work out their differences. It's definitely what it is. Uh, we went back and watched some Star Trek episodes, specifically Damok and what's the, the enemy? Darmok and the em- enemy. And they both have the same kind of frame where it's okay. Well, we don't understand each other. We can't communicate. We need to figure this out. And that's, that's very enemy mine. Oh my God. Darmok and Gelada Tanagra. Yes. That, holy when the shit. Walls fell. When the walls fell. Oh God. I love that episode. It's such a great it's episode. It's an amazing episode. I used it as an excuse just to watch it again. <laughs> It's funny, I was flashing back to an old He-Man cartoon where I think it's Teela and Evelyn are trapped on some desert planet and have to survive together and kind of put aside their differences. So I feel like this storyline, you see it in a lot of kids' cartoons of the 80s and 70s as well. Well, it's how to get along with people who are different from you. It's a, it's a lesson that, I mean, I guess we need to learn all the time and still do, but it, it's definitely a lesson. With Robinson Crusoe on Mars, I felt like 
part elements of it were taken and put into enemy mine not as much as the uh the article had said like you said i think it was like starlog or something but i definitely agree with helen the pacific as a model in fact there has to be influence over even the short story because they mess with each other there's outright hostility there's a lack of communication. Now, where Enemy Mine breaks from Hell in the Pacific is that there is that push to actually learn each other's language. There's the push to understand each other in one way or another. Whereas Hell in the Pacific, it's just a fight all the way through with some moments of peace. Yeah, very, very limited moments. And yeah, oh, yeah. there's there's no Lee Marvin learning Japanese. There's no Toshiro Mifune learning English. No. Mm. But those moments, especially um, when I think it's Toshiro first captures Lee Marvin and mm-hmm. he puts him in that kind of contraption and makes him drag along the sand. And then yeah. eventually Lee Marvin gets the upper hand. I was really impressed by that film. I was very glad to be able to have an excuse to watch it, though I wish the copy that I had had a better uh, quality audio at the ending. We ran into the same thing. It's a movie that had been on our list for years. Yeah. And again, this was a great opportunity to see it. So I, I loved it. Uh, we watched both endings. There is a cut ending that worked better, in my opinion. I don't know if you had an opportunity to see both endings. That ending that I saw. So they're having a conversation. One of them like knocks over something at the yes. end. And then I guess it's actually a shell that destroys the place. Yeah. <laughs> but what I yes. thought was he kicked that thing over and maybe it landed on a mine and exploded. <laughs> I thought they were supposed to be so distracted they didn't hear like a bombing run well, happening somewhere or the something. Thing, you, can he- you can hear the bombs coming. You can see the bombers uh, hear them coming. And... I think it's supposed to be the building anger and now it has exploded. So it's symbolism as well as a physical thing. But the second ending worked much better. The whole thing plays out as is until they basically get up and walk away from each other. And you can tell that they're done. They've gone in their completely separate directions. They aren't going to ever work together. They're just going their own way. And I think that worked better. The explosion uh, was interesting. I felt like it was a metaphor for, we don't know how to end this movie. Uh, Boom. There. Great. Done. I want the movie to end with a big explosion. I like that in that script that we read, that the first time we see a Drac, it's a poster. And it's one of these kind of, you know, you can't let the Huns win type of poster. So we get to see that further demonization of the enemy. I mean, we already have an enemy who looks different, who speaks different, who has a different religion, who has different sex organs, and all of those things can be demonized. All of those things are very relevant to today, where it's just that his sacred book is called the Talma. I kept thinking of the Talmud, but then really I'm thinking I'm thinking the Quran. I mean, even looking at some of the, the lettering and stuff, I was just like, yeah, they could have put the Quran in there just as easily. And it would have really fit with, you know, 2020. Uh, Absolutely. And the idea that they've taken all of these very contentious human issues and smashed it all into one creature, the Drak, who now represent everything that humanity can have an issue with. I really like that scene in the script. It was sort of the briefing one where their commander is giving them the pep talk about, you know, they're godless. They're they're not human. They're they don't even have two genders. And all I kept thinking of is like, 
in the 50s all the way to the 80s when you'd hear communists characterize as, oh, they don't believe in God. They don't have our values. Mm. They're not they're barely even human. It really resonated there. And one of those things that I found very interesting about the script in that moment is that they defaulted to a Christian God for so America, America, the world is now at peace and everyone's united under Christianity. So it's still Mm. like baseline weird. Yeah. Yeah, there's even a a remark in the script where one soldier comes in and tells another soldier, hey, they found Davidge, he's still alive. And the the first soldier's like, oh, it's your sick Soviet sense of humor. And I was like, okay, yeah, we are still very much in the Cold War here as we write this script. Oh, yes. (laughs) Even though we're supposed to be beyond all of that, this is supposed to be in the very distant future, well, at least 50 years from now. Funny how that distant future gets closer and closer. (laughs) It is even more relevant, the whole idea of the Drax being hermaphroditic because of the whole idea of the trans community and the violence against trans people and just that misunderstanding. And, you know, I just watched that uh, documentary that recently dropped where it was talking about trans actors and how trans people are portrayed in cinema. And that whole thing, that horrible Horrible slash wonderful moment when I think it was Katie Couric was trying to interview Laverne Cox and immediately went to the sex organ question. And Laverne Cox just turned it right around and was just like, hey, I'm not comfortable talking about that. Let's talk about something else. And just the way that she was able to take that and make it into, and I hate this phrase, a teachable moment. Yeah. (laughs) Having the Drax be this hermaphroditic race is really great in this. It is fantastic. I appreciate that they went to those lengths that not just the physical appearance and the language and religion, but we're talking down to the sex organs, down to things that people have a lot of difficulty over another hurdle for humanity, the idea of a different uh, or a non-binary gender, the idea that a creature can procreate by itself. That isn't, it isn't a bad thing. The idea that they had a creature like the Drax, and I keep saying creature and I feel bad that I'm saying creature. So I want to apologize for that. They're portraying this Drax as a very compassionate, very relatable character. It's not a negative portrayal of the non-binary. I was really interested watching it this time to watch how Davidge relates to Jerry and Zombies and see how well he does in terms of respecting the fact that this is not a, a male or a female, right. that it's a different gender. He does pretty well through a lot of it. I especially love that moment when Jerry's about to give birth and Davidge is telling them, you know, every woman has has these kind of worries. And Jerry's like, I'm not a woman. And he's like, uh, well, people, pregnant people. He's <laughs> trying to correct he does pretty well through most of the movie. It's I did find it curious that Davidge always refers to zombies as he. Does he? Yeah. Interesting, because he does use the gender-neutral they throughout the whole thing, referring to Jerry. And even when talking to zombies, you know, Jerry was uh, a great parent. You know, he uses parent rather than mother or father. But for some reason, and especially in the voiceover, zombies is always he. I, I think even the old Drak in the mine refers to zombies as he. There is something that we were talking about, the idea that there was only the old Drak in the mine who spoke with zombies because he was the only one who spoke English. Did Davridge just not teach him Drak? I would think he must have. Yeah, but the, the idea of him not uh, having the gender neutral 
And that it, it's a nature versus nurture kind of thing where I'm curious how much of his jockness had been taken away by being raised by a human. It kind of addresses the issue of raising children from a different religion or race than they would have been raised. I looked at it as more of a trust thing that he's used to speaking with Davidge in English. So when this drop can speak English, like, oh, this is the one I'm going to trust then because maybe he has some kind of connection. I was actually surprised that Davidge still had the Tama around his neck because I thought he would have started to teach Zamas the whole religion. That's a good point. That, yeah, that occurred to me at one point, too. Yeah, it does seem strange. But it is a handy plot device for later. So I like this idea of them talking about religion and this whole idea of these platitudes. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And Jerry is immediately like, oh, you know, Shiga or whatever. This is a, a teaching from my world. And it's just this idea. And I know that crazy Christians can't get over this idea that the Beatitudes are the same for everything. They and are. even even atheists know that you should treat others like you want to be treated. It's not you don't have to to go to church every Sunday and and pay your tithe to to understand that. It's something that is universal as Jerry says truth is truth. And this whole idea of their religions being so similar, yeah, because truth is truth. Because it seems like we're treating this like an allegory between the Western religions, meaning Christianity, Catholicism, and Eastern religions, it makes sense that they want to point out, hey, the base is all the same. Because it is. Within this science fiction realm, we're kind of reinforcing this uh, controversial idea that all religions are at base the same. I did think it was interesting seeing how Davidge and Jerry relate to these different things differently, one taking them a lot more seriously than the other, the same way that they kind of split when it comes to their lineage. To Davidge, you know, his lineage is just eh, his background, whatever. And, you know, these wise teachings, well, Mickey Mouse taught me. And he doesn't really take it too much seriously, where Jerry, everything that Shizuma says is very important and, and must be respected. And Shizuma himself should be respected. But I do think that Davidge does learn to get to a similar place with Shizma. So it's it's almost a story of conversion in a way. Yeah, to hear that Jerry knows 170 generations of his lineage and Davidge is struggling to even remember his grandparents' names. You know, it's just like, <laughs> what did they do? You could ask me the same thing. I mean, like, I can tell you what my grandparents' names were, but what they did for a living? Not really. And great-grandparents? No. And great-great-grandparents? Yeah, no. I have no idea what their names were, and much less their professions. I got to talk about that scene for a second, because that is easily my favorite scene in the movie, and it almost brings me to tears every time I see it. Just from the beginning, that when Jerry is yes, saying, I would like to convey this honor upon you, and the first thing Davidge does is crack a joke until he realizes, oh, this is serious, and apologizes, which immediately we see Davidge is starting to change and respect him. As Jerry is bringing out this lineage from Davidge and asking him about your parents and their parents, and when Jerry is reading it back with this respect and this giving it the weight that he feels it deserves, and Davidge just has this little humble smile on his face. Like, you get the sense he's this kind of blue-collar guy. He probably never really put much importance on it or thought much about his family or where it leads him in the universe, who he is. And suddenly to hear it coming from this alien voice and treated with respect, you can see it starts to give him a little bit more of a sense of identity. And especially the end of that scene where Jerry starts 
reading their lineage and the tears are flowing down. You can't tell, is it because of the pregnancy pains or is Jerry really afraid that Zombies is never actually going to make it off this planet, that they're never actually going to see their child except in the Drak society? As a little single unit of a scene, it's so beautiful. And I think it encapsulates so much of the movie and gives pretty much Davich his his real drive for the rest of the film. I find it very interesting that in the original novella, once we get to that pause point before he goes back to Firene 4, and actually in that one, he doesn't go back to Firene 4. He goes to the Drax homeworld. When he comes back to the military and eventually gets uh, discharged, then he goes back to Earth and he translates the Talma into English in order to give people a way to understand the Drax more. And he just can't take living in human society. And he ends up going back to Drax or Draco, I should say, and finds Zamas and Zamas is in a asylum is completely shut down. And it takes Davidge going to him and doing the whole finger thing. You know, I have five fingers, you have three fingers and trying to get him out before he can then take him and do the whole lineage thing. The, the thing that we see in the last scene, so different and to me much more powerful, but I don't know how well that would have translated to a movie. I'm not sure it would have translated to this movie. There's already so much going on in this movie that to bring him back to Earth and have him spend even two or three minutes translating, like two or three minutes on film, translating texts and then having to go to the homeworld, it was just too much. It would have been an extra at least 20 minutes and something else would have had to have been cut. Like the mine scene, that would have been great. (laughs) I do feel also that climactic point where... Davidge and Zamis are separated would have to be something a little bigger in this story. Uh, Davidge is hurt and he can't go on and he sends Zamis on. But I feel like it would have to be something a little bit more dramatic to justify a third act where there isn't as much action, where it is a guy going through bureaucracy and trying to reach this person on a different planet. Yeah, there's already enough uh, bureaucracy going on in here. And if we didn't have that ending, we wouldn't have Brian James. Oh, Brian James. I feel like he's sort of like the evil Nicolas Cage, especially when it does that thing with his eyes. Yes. Yeah, I always like seeing Brian James show up in things, and I always like seeing people get shot through the neck with arrows. But... <laughs> <laughs> or dropped in lava or hot magma. Magma. That made an impression on me as a kid. Wow. <laughs> it is so snidely whiplash. I'm surprised he's not twirling his mustache. <laughs> I love the tie that he has on. Like, he has doesn't have a button-down shirt, but he has, like, a leather jacket and just, like, this tie thrown on top. Like, there, I'm I'm in charge. You wait, wait, wait. So, was he wearing a shirt? He had like um kind of a wife beater or like a black wife beater kind of thing. And then a just a tie thrown around the oh, collar. Oh, <laughs> okay. I didn't notice that. He's very respectable. I mean, you can really see the difference between the Drax and the humans just as far as like how prepared and how smart Jerry is. The first time we actually get to see him, he's already found not shelter necessarily, but he's got fire. He's by a body of water. So he's got that going for him. He's got food. And Davich has nothing. The only thing he has are weapons. He's got a, a gun and a knife. And then he quickly loses the gun like an idiot. And the knife really does nothing for him. And he's caught within five minutes of, of meeting Jerry. This is where I think the movie apes Hell in the Pacific the most. The idea that we we go in and this non-white being is much more competent and has already procured all of the basic necessities of life and the white person's just going to go in and take it. So it, it's, uh, I would think at that moment, just like, Hey, 
colonizing. Hey, imperialism. <laughs> the film is trying to say a lot. Do you have oil? I would like to show you what democracy is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I like that Jerry looks like he's following the rules of war a little bit more closely. Davidge just wants to kill him. Jerry, when he captures him, his first thing is like, all right, what's your name? This is my name. What's your name? You know, the basic thing of prisoner of war. You get their name. You find out who they are. You'd mentioned that you think Davidge is coming from kind of a working class background, but it's also worth noting that Jerry is very educated. Uh, philosophy, I believe it was, but also, uh, he was a linguist, which explains how he picked up the language so quickly and was able to teach Davidge. Yeah. It feels like if Davidge wasn't in the armed services, the, the space force or whatever. That, um, he would probably be, I don't know, fixing cars or something. But yeah. And meanwhile, Jerry's like working at a university probably and then gets the call. Like you have to do this. This was probably some sort of enforced service for him. It's like, yeah, a university professor versus a farmhand or something. And the planet of firing for, I respect that it is so, well, it's, it's so harsh that they have these um, uh, frequent meteor showers that are uh, basically fiery meteors, so just basically fireballs that come uh, quite often and will destroy destroy anything that it touches. And that's very exciting, as especially in a film that's mainly people trying to talk and survive. So it's, it's adding in that Star Wars element. So like action is happening. But it does force them as characters to work together faster than they might have had conditions conditions been better. And I like how well thought out the landscape is and the aliens that these meteorites happen. So these two species that we see have evolved to deal with it in different ways. One lives underground and one has evolved with this armored shell on its back that it can withstand the hits of the meteorites. Oh, and I have to hand it to damage to actually realize that and be like, hey, let's build our shelter out of these things. Yes. Yeah. Though the second appearance of that well, I don't know. I think it's probably more like the third appearance of that snake-like tongue thing and the creature that's attached to it, that it it seems like it's so mad at Davidge for escaping the one time that it's going to track them down and leave its sand pit and go into their house and try to get them there. It does seem that way. And as a kid, I did envision it being the same creature out for revenge, but Maybe it was a different one. I, always, I don't know. I always took it as a different one that as it was going underground, felt the warmth from under their hut and went, ooh, there's something here. I'm going to go check this out and went hunting. But it's also worth noting how similar in appearance and effect that is to the Sarklock pick and Return of the Jedi. I started to wonder if it influenced the, the Graboids from Tremors, this idea of you see this thing that looks like a snake and, oh, no, this is actually just the tongue and it's underground and it'll mm -hmm. bury right under and pull you under. It reminded me a lot of um, the the what the pitcher plant or something. It reminded me more of a like a, some sort of a, a an adaption in nature to plants where they go out and will grab things rather than just being stationary. Yeah, the carnivorous plants, the ones who grab flies, and I think you're right that it is the pitcher plant will eat frogs. It's crazy. I will say this thing creeped me out as a kid, especially just how quietly just that stock of the the tongue just comes up and. I love that when Davidge first sees it, he almost kind of laughs because he's like, what What the hell is this? And then realizes, oh, no, this thing is dangerous. And the way it coils, it almost reminds me of the uh, alien ships from War of the Worlds, the little coiled heat ray on the end of the neck there, the way it spins around looking for prey. But, it's a good catch. Man, when it starts going after his leg and you get that that really red jello kind of blood coming from Davidge's leg, it looks like it's going to tear it right off. Oh, that grossed me out as a kid. 
I really think that this inspired uh, the creatures that were in, what was that, the third Pitch Black movie, just called Riddick, I think it was, because there were some very similar things in there where, again, you just see a little hint of it, and then you realize, oh, this is connected to a much larger being. Yeah, actually, uh, I was thinking of Pitch Black a lot when it came to the wildlife on this planet and how they evolved and this idea of people having to work together against the harsh elements. I was thinking of that, and I was also thinking of Fantastic Planet, yes. the Roland Topor, yeah, and those crazy plants and animals, and just how we get to see that circle of life with them eating poor, helpless little humans, those kind of things, and that definitely was running through my mind, as well as um, I was thinking of Jan Svankmeyer at least once during this film when they show what Zamas looks like as a baby, and I completely thought of Little Otik. Little Otik is one of those films where I'm like, oh, I'll get to it someday, but I need to be in the right mood. And I, now that you've said that Baby Zombies looks like Little Otik, I need to go see it like today. I kept thinking of the little baby visitor from uh, V, the final battle, when it's finally born. <laughs> the little green one. Reptiles were hot at this point. They I mean, really were. <laughs> I just talked recently about The Last Starfighter and <laughs> yeah. uh, Grig with his mask, and then you've got Jerry with his and Little Zamis, and then the aliens from V. I mean, when we learned that those uh, humans that came down uh, were actually reptilians, that was uh, really the cause celebre in fourth grade. Was it Scientology? Is the lizard people one there there's one um cult like religion that uses the idea of reptilian intelligent creatures and i i think it cropped up around that time late 70s early 80s i can't remember when it came but Do you yeah, remember which one i mean i can't remember specifically but i remember the lizard people thing while it's unfortunately still going strong today right yeah. q told me that this was going to happen I kept thinking of uh, Greg from Last Starfighter when Jerry would do his his weird little chuckle, his laugh, and Greg's sort of <laughs> laugh that he does. The stories I read that Lou Gossett Jr. could do that weird kind of trill thing when he was a kid and brought that to the character. Which I love, and we've all done it. If you've seen that film, especially if you grew up with it, you know how to do it. See, I can never roll the tongue enough to really pull off Drock. I'd be lost on Dracon. I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> She does it all the time to me, though, so. And, of course, I also thought of uh, Empire Strikes Back when he's carrying around little Zamas. I was picturing Luke Skywalker with Yoda on his back. Aww. I mean, <laughs> that puppet just doesn't really do it for me. Good thing that we're in long shots for that part, because yeah. it would have just looked ridiculous in any sort of a close-up. It was kind of rough. It It definitely wasn't the best work. The medium-sized one that's a puppet that he's kind of snuggling with, I thought, actually looked really good. They thought they did a great job with that one, even though we don't see it very much. One of the things I wish they had done a better job of is telling me how quickly Zemus grew up. Because when I was younger and up until I read the short story, I had assumed that he'd been on the planet for 12 years or for a very, very long time. So to know that it was compressed and that it even comes down to the speed at which a drug grows up, like that would have been really fascinating to know. They kind of hint at it with the revelation he's been on the planet three years. So I guess we... We kind of imply how fast that Zamis is growing. Yeah, there's one line where I think he says that by the time I made this outfit, you would have grown out of it. But you say that same thing to kids that are human. Yeah. Exactly. They they grow out of things so quickly, especially that young, that it, it didn't tell me that there was any kind of acceleration. I have to admit uh, something stupid that I always think when I watch this. When 
Jerry holds up that outfit that he is sewing for Zamis. I always thought that he said jammies. And then I No me too. And then I realize, oh no, he's saying Zamis, the name of the his kid. All right. I didn't realize that until we had subtitles, so it's okay. <laughs> I also thought it was jammies. Zombie okay, jammies. Good, good. <laughs> oh my god, we taught him how to say jammies. That's bizarre. Yeah. Of all the words that you can teach a track. <laughs> we'll teach him how to say shit and jammies. The biggest laughs of the movie for me, just the way he delivers that line. <laughs> I love Dennis Quaid. Though he can be in some of the worst movies, but his run in the 80s, this and Dreamscape and Inner Space, I mean, there are just so many great things that he was in. And it always, I always forget, oh yeah, he and Lou Gossett Jr. were together in Jaws 4 before this. Uh, Jaws 3, yeah, I forgot that too Jaws until 3. we were doing the research. Like, oh, that's right. Oh, man, man that movie's rough. Yeah, he and now it's like if Dennis Quaid is in a movie, it's like, oh, this probably isn't very good. I want it to be good. I've always wanted things to be better for Dennis Quaid, and it doesn't happen. He just like his agent is probably one of the worst people in the world. I agree, only because I mean he would have been a natural facial shoe in for someone like the Joker, and I mean just natural because his his smile, those cheeks, that's very Jack Nicholson Joker like. All by itself. So the fact that he couldn't even get, say, Dick Tracy (laughs) is is a damn shame. I feel like the last really good thing he was in was probably Traffic. He was great in that in that Mm. little part. But yeah, it's it's been a rough few years for him, unfortunately, which is a pity. I do think he's really good. He really feels like he's channeling Han Solo in the beginning of this movie. You're not a fan of the day after tomorrow? <laughs> no. I like Ian I like Ian Holm in it. Um that's about it. <laughs> but then I like Ian Holm in everything, so yeah, I'm looking through the last few years of stuff that he's done, actually the last few decades, and I'm just like, Nope, haven't seen this, haven't seen that, or I just I've I've made a, a point to not see it, like a dog's purpose. Yeah. yeah we, we, we missed that intruder one too that came out this past year where he's like the guy living still living in the house oh, yeah. when the new couple moves yeah, in. Yeah, I, I actually have that in one of our queues. It's yeah. available. <laughs> just Bad Ronald. Sort of a racially charged update of Bad Ronald, it seems like. Oh, okay. <laughs> where he's like he's the caretaker of the house but won't leave this this African American couple alone. I do have to say that uh, his hair work in the first half of the oh. movie, as he's been there for a while, is really rough. It's fine when his hair gets really long and he has like the Moses beard, but there are a few points where those wigs are just, oh, they're, they're really tough. There is this wonderful website. I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but uh, there's a woman who is a professional wig maker, and she will go through films and she'll point out – bad hair in films, bad wig work and why it doesn't work. And it's pretty fascinating. And I want to go back and see if this made it in the list because it is abysmal. It it looks plastic. Particularly the scene where Jerry first gives him the Talmud and there's that close up of him with the the pasted on beard and it just looks bizarre. And his his hair looks huge. You can tell his real hair is kind of matted underneath this giant wig. It's it's tough. Considering how good the rest of the makeup is for the movie, I found that really jarring. Well, with him being in production for so long, you would have thought like, hey, Dennis, grow out your hair and beard, and then we'll shoot it backwards and, you know, have that. We'll trim off a little, shoot the next thing, trim off a little, and then take you back to clean shaven. But that's planning. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's one thing this movie didn't necessarily have. We should talk about 
differences between this and even the German version, which I never knew that there were, uh, there's an extra scene in the German version. It has to do with him going back, right? We talked about that when he goes back to the uh, ship, when he gets rescued and gets separated from Zamas, and he goes back to the ship, and now we're at the, what was at one point, the beginning of the movie, and there's that really super abrupt cut. Oh, it's yeah. so weird. He's completely crazy. He's got the big freight wig on. He looks like uh, um old boy, you know, when he's in prison. <laughs> and then uh, all of a sudden, it's like cut to him walking down the hallway. I'm going to get Zamas back. And it's like, whoa, how did this happen? There's, again, no indication as to how much time had passed. We have the uh, Eureka Blu-ray of the movie, and it actually does have the scene on there as an extra in German, which is kind of funny to watch. And yeah, it's, it's only like one additional little add-on to the scene. It's right after they find him and they're talking with the generals who are like, he may have been working for the other side. And it's his crew again. Yeah, and the his crew, crew that doesn't show up in the actual American cut of the film. And they ask for time to kind of rehabilitate him and, and bring him back to who he was and the general gives him some time and then we cut to them in a cafeteria and they're trying to tell him, just forget about it. You're fine. You're with us. You're probably going to get a promotion. Everything's okay. And he just tells him, no, I have to go back. Gets up, walks into the hallway and then that's where the film continues with his friend chasing him down. And it, at least it gives that moment of where Davidge has a choice that we see. Yes, he could close his mind to zombies, forget about it, rejoin with his crew, rejoin with the humans, try to forget everything that happened to him. And he doesn't. And I, that's the one thing I really think they should have used uh. that crew a lot more for. But you can imagine what the original structure had been where it starts off with him waking up in, in space again and seeing his friends and telling the actual story that we see and then wrapping up the story with I need to go back. So he's relived all of these experiences with Jerry and Zami, and he needs to go continue his journey. And that structure works so much better for me. It, it's um even though it's dealing with everything uh in a flashback, it feels much more linear. Yeah, and you can feel that scene in the cafeteria probably was it right there. He starts telling the exactly. story right there with his friends. Yeah. And and even watching the deleted scene, it does feel a little bit abrupt, like all of a sudden that's probably where they had shot that and had to cut it. And it sounds like they had that all the way through until after a test screening. And then they said, no, we got to recut this. It suffers from the recut. And I think a lot of uh, Davidge's narration, you could have just stripped out. So much of it is kind of told on screen anyway. It has a very Harrison Ford Blade Runner quality to it, to me, of just – it kind of explains things that either we could have gotten that information better somewhere else or we kind of pick it up as the film goes on anyway. Well, and from what you were saying, it sounds like at that point he forgot the gender neutrality of Jerry, so he kept calling him he in the voiceover. Yeah. If that narration that we hear in the movie was the original narration, a lot of it doesn't make sense for him telling his friends this because of how he refers to Jerry in the first half of the movie. It, it doesn't feel like a guy who's grown to respect him and would tell the story. He would have told the story a different way. So it, it doesn't really feel totally Yeah, well I don't out. like the language that he's using if he's supposed to be telling us a story about somebody he cares about. I don't remember there being VO in the script to be like, here we go. Really Let me tell it. you the story. <laughs> no. Yeah. I've been making fun of this recently, that whole thing of like show don't tell. And yeah, he's telling us a lot of stuff and really trying to hold our hands and take us through. And I think that's, again, 
suffering because of the recut and probably like, we need to make this so that everybody understands exactly what's happening here. I feel like with test screenings, if one person writes a question, how did this happen? They're like, well, we have to put in a line or something to explain it and make sure it's absolutely clear. Hmm. That terror of, oh my God, somebody's going to be confused. I, I do prefer films that open up and let me explore and discover rather than just give me a voiceover with everything that is happening as it's happening on the screen. It feels like a fairy tale. It's too much of a once upon a time, here we go. With some films that works really well, uh, I was actually thinking Krull, for instance, <laughs> which uh, it came out around the same time, a little earlier, but it uses this kind of fantasy fairy tale structure to it, and it ends with the same type of voiceover that we get at the end of Enemy Mine, the, the same uh, omnipotent, and so having re-read, destroyed, blah, blah, blah. It, I feel like Enemy Mind doesn't really know what it wants to be at this point. Is it fantasy? Is it a space epic? Is it a drama? Is, is it survival? I think they were just throwing everything they could at it because production had gone on so long and they'd already spent so much money. So it's like, can we capitalize on this? And they just threw too much. The other thing that is handing us how we're supposed to feel throughout so much of this is the music. And the score is a little bombastic at times. I really noticed it the last time I was watching it where I was like, this score never leaves us alone. It is there so much and is just so present that there are times where it is fighting for the same level of volume as our character speaking. It's like, wow, this music is really in my face. And it's kind of all over the place. There's a lot of times when the composer Maurice Yar's Music sounds like different composers. I heard some John Williams. I heard some Jerry Goldsmith. There's one point where it sounds a lot like James Horner's score from Willow. Yes. And I noticed that he kind of borrows one of his own themes. The uh, One of the themes at the end of the movie, you can hear it when uh, Zombies and Davidge are reunited, is almost the exact same theme he writes for the children from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. When Max makes it to the little oasis, you change a couple of notes. It's the exact same melody. Uh, luckily, I have been able to put Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome out of my head so much that I can't remember that. So I'm very happy about that. Now, though, I'm going to have to go back and watch that scene. So thanks. To yeah, it's well, all your fault. Just focus on all, how awesome Tina Turner is and you'll be OK. It is funny, though, because we we're watching it and I, I think you commented, it sounds like Lawrence of Arabia. And we found out, oh, yeah, there, there's why. It's the same composer. Yeah, the, the score, it's way too sweeping and epic. It was uh, betraying its composer. I do really like the music for the the very last shot of the movie before the Drac console. I like that theme. I think that's really kind of ominous and, and interesting and beautiful. The music itself is fantastic. It's, it is beautiful music. It doesn't gel together as a score and definitely not for a score for this film. Like you were saying, very there all the time. There's no breathing room. That matte painting that they're doing at the end is just... I like the reflection of the sunlight on the water. I think that's done very well, but the all of the Drax just all shoved in there together just looks like, oh, somebody just painted this. Okay, I understand. It's awkwardly framed. The composition is really squished down to the bottom right side. It's it's bizarre. It's also on screen for a lot longer than you'd normally have a matte painting or a matte shot on screen for. So you do have a lot of time to look at it and notice all the details and notice that those islands in the water don't feel like they're casting shadows quite the right way that they should. But I, I still do like the shot overall, though. And I can't think of a better way that you're going to end this. I mean, it has to end at this point, though I kind of was hoping for more of a 
close up and Davidge there standing next to Zamas and reciting the lineage. I was really hoping for more of that. But I mean, you have to end the story at this point. You do. There's nowhere else you can end this story. But they should have gone more for the Star Wars ending where, you know, (laughs) we need to see people observing this journey, witnessing the end of this journey. And we don't get that. It's so far away. It's almost like it really isn't happening at all. I wonder if part of it was the concern of how are we going to do this many character makeups for all the actors who are going to be the Drac extras? That's a good point. So you can tell they have like the five council members, zombies, and there's a little bit of the crowd that's real and the rest are painted so there are solutions to that they could have just had those main characters witness the lineage they didn't have to have a big crowd it would have made it smaller and more intimate but it would have been i think a little bit more successful than the matte painting oh and this is going to be very silly but seeing the drock council members from the back standing there all i can think of is the opening from uh, mork and mindy with the mork's alien supervisors that we just see from the back nice we don't get this in the movie and to your point from earlier, Corinne, I don't think that we could have this, but the strangeness of a human going to Drac and presenting this, I mean, it's like having a Japanese person in World War II coming over with his American foundling and going up to, I don't know, Congress or something. It would have just been too strange. I almost feel like the movie is running out of time to be able to deal with that, unfortunately. So they just, just kind of have to sweep in under the rug and go, well, just accept it. It's fine that, you know, he was accepted and he's allowed to do this. I did like this implication that the war is still going on at this point, And then maybe this is the first step to peace, that this is Dobbage actually making the first gesture that will lead to some kind of reconciliation between the two races. I think that's an interesting idea that they don't really put too much of a light on, but that it's it's just suggested. Well, this war does continue for a long time, and I was really happy to be able to read the other books of this series that uh, Barry Longyear did. I mean, Enemy Mine is basically just like a little intro to this much larger world that he created, and the books, uh, The Tomorrow Testament and The Last Enemy, my goodness, these are long, voluminous books, but are they satisfying? I really enjoyed reading this whole trilogy of books. I tried to get into the Tomorrow Testament. Unfortunately, I ran out of time to finish it before we were recording here, but I definitely liked what I saw of it. I'm looking forward to finishing the whole set. They took the three and they put them into one volume called The Enemy Papers, and then Longyear went through and he added some more things. He uh, did what he calls like an author's cut of Enemy Mine, so it's a little bit different than what was published in the uh, Asimov magazine in 1979. I think it might even be different than the first paperback version of it. The entire Enemy Papers paperback is such that you could kill a small child with it very easily. Um, So once I had the opportunity to read this on Kindle, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, because I was afraid. I was looking at that book. I was afraid because it was so thick. (laughs) It can be daunting. Oh, yeah. And with Kindle, I'm just like, okay, cool. Yeah, I have no idea how long this book is. I'm just going to keep reading until I reach the end. And, you know, three, four weeks later, I was really satisfied with the other two stories and just how everything fit together because we do get Davidge again we get to see him. He's actually moved back to Firene 4, and he is basically like a teacher of the children of the line of Zamis. So when there are new kids, they get sent to this planet and they hang out with Davidge. He's like almost like freaking Yoda. 
I loved this idea that he's now part of their mythology. The children go to learn from him, not just how to be drunk or, or religious in their way, but also to be accepting of other species that don't look like them or act like them. It's, um, I think really beautiful, but I'm not sure in this incarnation of the film how it could work. And I love that idea that in the story, Davidge is no longer comfortable in human society and never really comfortable in Drax society either. And he kind of lives on his own because he's finally found a way, as Jerry would say, to find who he's supposed to be and be comfortable with himself, to not feel alone while being alone. In the second book, it's really nice because it's actually a female protagonist. So you get that point of view and she goes and writes a book of the Talman and it's the first book not authored by a drac. It just goes places that are really interesting. And to our point from so much earlier, as I'm reading the book, I kept thinking, this is so weird that she keeps calling the dracs it, but what else is she going to? I mean, it, it's good that long year respects the pronouns but it is mm. so strange you know i would i kept thinking of, well maybe they would be nicer or something but he does a good job of never saying that a drac is a he or a she i think given um the lens that we look at things now they is definitely a a, a good default but what was this written in the late 70s the first one was 79 yeah 79, yeah. So I, I'd say for the cusp of the 80s, which was like abysmal for any non-white heterosexual person, it is progressive. Saying it for him would have been very progressive at the time. I couldn't help but notice in the movie that Jerry Bell uses it when describing zombies. So I guess it's at least in the context of the film, their preferred pronoun. But it doesn't read very well now. It, it, it reads as uh, an object rather than a being. The fact that they're an alien society, I think, gives a little bit more room for that to work. But yeah. So I think all three of us like this movie. You know, it's not like, oh, well, this movie's without fault. I mean, there are clunky, some clunky special effect shots, especially when they are looking out over the valley and it's just that really horrible blue screen. I was shocked to find that they shot any of this on location. I think they shot it on, what, the Canary Islands once they redid it. So they shot in Iceland and were supposed to shoot in Budapest or something. And then they ended up doing a studio in Munich and then the Canary Islands. And I'm just like, really? There was This was actually shot in a real place? Because this whole thing just looks like a soundstage to me. So much of it was built uh, so I, I don't even know why they bothered with location. It's funny because I can definitely tell the difference watching the movie. I, I think they shot in Lanzarote, which has been used for like alien landscapes in so many other movies and TV shows. It's shown up in Doctor Who a bunch of times and uh, One Million BC. And every time they get to like the petrified forest, I just think, oh, it's like Star Trek set. You can tell they spent a lot. They took a lot of care for it, but it just doesn't quite work for me. It, I never really buy it as an actual physical location. I will say the Lagoon set, even though it is a set, is really impressive just for its size and scope. That is pretty incredible looking. But again, it looks like a really elaborate and cool set, not an actual physical location somewhere. Which, I mean, I'm okay with. Again, I'm just going to compare it to Crawl in its production design. So there's definitely a this-is-not-real aspect to it, but it's still enjoyable. Also filmed in Lanzarote, actually. Oh, was it? (laughs) Maybe it's just Lanzarote that doesn't look real. (laughs) Yeah, that was the thing. When they were talking about the landscapes uh, during the Icelandic shooting and just how gray and dire everything was, I was like, 
well, I don't know. Maybe you could build that on a set, but I'm glad that you can see that there are real scenes. But to my mind, I just keep thinking this is a set and I don't know why, but uh, there are certainly things that are sets like that pond area. But yeah, so much of it when he is traipsing across the landscape, I'm just like, okay, yeah, that's a really nice set. For me, it's like any wide shot where you can, where Dennis Quaid is really small in the frame. That's probably the location, mm-hmm. but that's about it. <laughs> so I really feel like they would have been better off just trying to find some real locations to shoot some of these other scenes in instead of building those sets. It's a lot of money for something that just doesn't quite work. But I know the reviews at the time were not necessarily that favorable, but when I'm, you know, 13, I'm not about to, you know, go out and read Janet Maslin's review. And then even some of the reviews of the DVD were just like, oh, the dialogue sucks and blah, blah. And I'm like, it works for me. This film works for me. Maybe it's nostalgia, but I think a lot of it is because it's just a solid story. And like we said, it's a story that's been told before, but they managed to execute it. And I find Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett Jr. so likable that I'm there for them. Their chemistry is amazing, and I think it really makes the film. Uh, we'd been discussing, do we like this film because of nostalgia, or do we like this film in addition to its nostalgic value? And I think I genuinely enjoy this film. It's a sweet story. It takes a lot of shortcuts, like we're supposed to assume something, or yes, of course he gets back to the uh, Drac- Draco and I'm okay with those things. It's, it is a sci-fi fairy tale in a way. It Morality wears, tale as well. Yeah. It's everything. It wears its heart in its sleeve, which can be a negative for some people. I actually think it's kind of a positive. And at the very least, you walk away with three really amazing performances. Quaid's great. Gossett is amazing. And I think we have to talk about how great Bumper Robinson is yes. as zombies. I mean, to put a little kid in that elaborate makeup – and have him act and have him imitate Gossett's inflections and do the Drock voice just right and give a really good moving performance. I mean, you actually, you fall in love with this kid. It's, it was terrific. No, he did a fantastic job. And yeah, I, to hear about all the pain that Gossett went through and I'm just like, Oh, are they putting this little kid through this pain with these contacts too? I really hope they simplify it. There are a couple shots where it looks like his eyes are different. I don't think they went for quite the same cat eye look on zombies for the entire movie. At least I hope not, given how uncomfortable it sounded for Gossip. And caused eye damage for a little bit, reportedly. Yeah. 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 And then it was so bad that he ended up taking painkillers, which was playing right into his drug addiction at the time. I found it interesting that Luke Gossett Jr. called this one of his favorite films to do. I'm not that surprised. He did so much work to transform himself from a human to an entire and, – and you can imagine, he is pretty much built the way this character moves and physically behaves from the ground up. So this is an actor's creation. And I feel like Gossett really hasn't gotten the roles he probably deserves as an actor. It seems like he, he hasn't gotten too many great ones to really show off what he can do. And here he absolutely can and just goes for it. I will say I was delighted when he came back and was in Watchmen last year. I was just so happy to see him. Oh, we still haven't seen Watchmen. It's it's one of those shows that, I mean, I fell in love with the comic, the movie, you know, eh. it was. <laughs> but I, we just haven't gotten to the show yet. So I'm glad to hear he's in it. I think that he was a much better actor than the roles that he was given. And when he would show up in things like Left Behind 3, it was like, oh, man, oh. you poor guy. Again, you need a better agent. Mm. Absolutely. 
he was on top of the world for a little while in the 80s. I mean, Officer and a Gentleman, I think he got yeah an, an Oscar for it. He had he been in Roots, which was just like such a great, uh, fertile ground for so many African-American actors. Then it's like, okay, what else has he done? I know he's done great stuff, but it is just so like little pockets of things rather than this long, great career. And he's very, very aware of this and in his autobiography talks about the possibilities of why it happened this way. The, that uh, insurance companies refused to cover him after he went to rehab and that he, he points out quite rightly that there were quite a few actors at the time who were much heavier drug addicts, alcoholics, uh, screw-ups than he was at that time that were still covered and that he thinks part of it was racially based. And I don't disagree. It's very possible that insurance companies looked at his race and his background, the fact that he had an issue in needed rehab and just decided to drop him. So I think it stopped him from doing a lot of films that an actor of his caliber should have been able to do. And a lot of times when he would get roles, he's kind of second bananas to some white guy, like in the Iron Eagle movies or Firewalker. And even in this movie, he does get second billing. And I understand why he gets second billing in this film he's not in it as much as uh dennis quaid but i feel like having just come off of an oscar win it would have been natural for them to have billed him first or done the paul newman steve mcqueen thing and had one over the other right this little slash between them so you can't really tell all right who's getting top billing I know some people even had troubles with the poster, and I'm like, what else are you going to do, guys? The poster image, to me, really is very striking as far as these two faces facing off with each other. And this is before the age of the two-face poster. You know, like we get, we <laughs> go through um, it's kind of like phases with posters. You know, right now it's like big head kind of thing. <laughs> yep. But this one, them facing off literally against each other really worked for me. And I, if I remember correctly, the planet is in the center. And I remember this poster specifically from the theaters. So maybe six years old, I remember this poster. And the uh, it's telling you everything you need to know. Space, aliens, humans, and there's some kind of face-off. I feel like it kind of became the scapegoat for the movie not doing well. Because you can't say that Fox wasn't behind this with that. I mean, they had that poster in like 150 different malls. They had 3,500 trailers sent out to theaters promoting it. They... Uh, bought ads uh, on uh, like the pre-Thanksgiving Sunday, simultaneous ads on three networks. They threw everything behind this, trying to get it out there to the public. Well, I think part of it is they had to, given how much they'd invested in making basically two movies. So they were yeah. doubling down and trying to get back their investment. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to hear all about that in just a few minutes here. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear from author Barry Longyear. Next, we'll hear from Enemy Mind's original director, Richard Loncrane. And finally, we'll hear from Enemy Mind's screenwriter, Ed Kamara. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... 
free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Tor Books. When George Romero passed away in 2017, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Krauss finished Romero's final zombie tale. Set in the present day, The Living Dead is an entirely new tale, the story of the zombie plague as George A. Romero wanted to tell it. Read The Living Dead by George A. Romero and Daniel Krauss on sale now wherever books are sold. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from Barry Longyear, who wrote the original novella that Enemy Mine was based upon. Before I even ask you about the Enemy Papers, I'm very curious about you and how you got into being a a writer, and especially science fiction writer at the time. My least favorite course in school was English, and I had no intention of uh, ever writing or anything, although my fiction career did start in high school because I refused to go to the library and we had to do those hideous little uh, college research papers that uh, are designed to crush creativity out of anyone. Topic sentence, you know, a couple of footnotes and this, that, and, you know, support your topic sentence with you know, somebody else's opinions and, and yabba yabba. And I, I didn't. I didn't want to go to the school. I used to make up my own references. My college research papers were works of fiction, although uh, it got scary at one point where uh, my paper was the gallows humor of Shakespeare. One of my references that I made up, my teacher thought sounded really cool, and he went to the library to find it. And, uh, and we see the reference, uh, the uh, title was Black Bard. And <laughs> I can't remember who I made up as the author, but yeah, I told the uh, teacher that I didn't uh, find that book in library, school library. Uh, one of my father's books, you know, at home back in Pennsylvania. This is a school in Virginia, and our house burnt down. So I, <laughs> I don't even know if there's another copy in the world, you know. And uh, yeah, I had to make up less interesting references from. Then on, I suppose the real kickoff came. Uh, see, after I got out of the army and I went to Wayne State University, studied economics, 
political science, sociology, and I took some writing courses that were a waste of time. But I met uh, the woman I married, and uh, uh, after that, uh, I remember I was visiting my sister in Philadelphia, and, and she was a big science fiction fan. She had tons of books. I read a book called, by Harry Harrison, Jr. called Bill the Galactic Hero, which is a satire on both science fiction and the Army. And it was a riot. I just laughed myself sick. I thought that, gee, if you could make a living writing this stuff, you know, that would be just about perfect. So I started writing, but I didn't get into fiction writing until some years later uh, when we moved to Maine. Uh, I started off with a uh, uh, little satirical piece that I thought was funny and sent it off to George Sithers at Isaac Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. It was basically, you know, a big in-joke on science fiction, and uh, and uh, he rejected the story but wanted to see more stuff. So that's, I sat down and wrote uh, that first one of the Circus World stories, The Tryouts, and, and he bought it, and uh, he bought another 100,000 words worth of stories before the first one was published. <laughs> It was a tickle, but that's how I got into it. What year was that? Do you remember? Oh, let's see. My first story, that was 19, uh, 1978, I think. If you've uh, been to my website, barryvlonger.com there, there's a bibliography there that has all the dates and stuff for the different short stories and novels and collections and things. It seems like once you started, you just went a little nuts with everything. I mean, just because looking at the dates of things like Circus World and seeing all three of those coming out in 80, 81, 82, and then also Enemy Mine or, uh, yeah, Enemy Mine coming out in, what, 79? It just seems like you were just cranking stuff out. I was starved for approval, and, and here's this guy who is, you know, issuing me approval by sending me checks. You know, <laughs> it. I don't know. It was, well, it was great. It, it was. Uh, I was having a lot of. I had a lot of fun uh, working with George Sithers, and I learned an awful lot uh, from him. Uh, he had pretty much taken on the responsibility of developing new writing talent, and I was one of his fruits, as it were. I don't know. It was, it was an awful lot of fun. Uh, working with him, one of the reasons I got into writing, frankly, is because of alcoholism. It enabled me uh, uh, to make a living and not have to deal with people. Uh, all the people I dealt with were through the mail or through the phone. You know, I, I could isolate all I wanted, which worked great until uh, the bottom fell out of everything. I had to go into rehab. And once I got out, I couldn't write at all. Because uh, all the reasons I had for writing needed to change. They told me in rehab, you know, to recover from this disease, uh, you're pretty much going to have to change everything but your hair color. Uh, unless changing your hair color will help, then you have to change that too. I didn't understand uh, the extent of the changes that would have to be made. And uh, so I basically gave up writing for a year and uh, pretty much concentrated on my recovery and hoping that, the light bulb was going to go on soon. Well, before my 
reasons for writing were pretty much to, as I said, uh, solicit and acquire approval. I get pats on the head, fame, money, and stuff like that. Uh, what it finally changed to was, uh, you know, after about a year of this, uh, I had a story I wanted to tell, and it uh, didn't matter whether anybody liked it or not or if anybody bought it or not. Writing it would be sufficient reward for writing it. And that was my novel, St. Mary Blue, about a group of patients going through rehab. And ever, ever since, this is how I write the stories. If the story wants to be told, it tells me so, and I go write it. And if nobody else in the world likes it, that's great. You know, if I like it, that's the only test I have. And uh, I'm, I'm writing for me. And if other people like it, that's great. If your early stuff was coming out in the the late 70s, also that means that Enemy Mine was one of those early stories because that was, what, uh, September 79, I think, that came out in Isaac Asimov's uh, magazine. How was that being nominated and and winning so many awards for that story so early in your career? That must have really put the zap on your head. Well, it messed me up pretty thoroughly because after I got all of the awards, I stuck them on my desk and said, okay, now I have to live up to this thing. That throws me up really good. I had to pack them all up, stick them in the bottom drawer, and uh, I had I had to you know write my stories instead of great stories. <laughs> it screwed me up some. Well, also uh, what messed me up, oh, pretty early in my career, uh, George Sithers uh, said, you know, I was so brand new at uh, moving from just fooling around to writing professionally. You know, I had to write a little uh, how-to book on writing, covering that aspect of it, and uh, uh, that's the Science Fiction Writer's Workshop. But in the process of uh, figuring out how I did it, how you know, what, how, you know how I put together stories and fiction mechanics and all that stuff, uh, it's pretty much like, you know, a, a guy who does sight reading of music, you know, just plays, you know, through muscle memory, suddenly saying, okay, that note on that line of that shape means to poke this key, you know, and, and it just screws up the piano playing. And it screwed up my writing pretty well. It took me a while to uh, get it back on a, a level where I wasn't thinking about it. I was just telling stories. Where did the idea for Enemy Mind come from? I was pretty much sitting in my office uh, looking out the window. It's in Maine, and it was a bitter cold winter day and the snow's blowing around and stuff and and I just started toying in my head about you know how long I would last out there if I only had you know the clothes on my back and a and a knife or something and uh, it probably wouldn't last 10 minutes that was really really a nasty storm I was thinking mainly in terms of survival I, I don't know I, I, I played around it in my head and and forgot I think I wrote a couple of notes and stuck up my idea file. I used to have just a cardboard box I'd keep on my desk. You know, I'd put in clippings or little notes, titles, you know, whatever moved me, you know, and and throw it in the box. And I hardly ever looked through the box, but it was a way of telling my brain, you know, file this away and and chew on it. And I I do the same thing now, except it's, you know, a file in my... uh, Actually, it's a whole bunch of different files, 
in in uh, in my computer. What one of the problems I have uh, is absolutely no control over word length, whatever. The story has its own size. I was bound to determine to sit down and write a five thousand word short story. And uh, they said, okay, how do I start? Well, I need a hook, so I'm going to have one guy fighting with another, you know. So I started off with the thing there, and 30,000 words later, you know, I had an enemy mind. And how long before Hollywood comes knocking and wants to adapt this as a movie? Oh, it wasn't uh, about two years. I was at the World Science Fiction Convention in Denver. And uh, a guy from King's Road Productions uh, looked me up there, said they were interested, and, you know, I told him to get in touch with my agent. I didn't think it was going to amount to anything. But uh, I told my wife about it, and she thought I was lying. <laughs> As I said, I was drinking pretty heavily in those days, and uh, I, I was not a font of honesty or anything. How involved in the process of the adaptation and the actual filming and all that, uh, did you get? Uh, none at all. They hired a screenwriter, stuff like that. They said they wanted me to be involved. They told the screenwriter uh, uh, they'd give me his address and stuff. And I wrote a very long, detailed letter about why I thought Enemy Mine worked uh, as a story. Uh, but basically, it's not a kid's story. The star of the story is a relationship. And you can't have that be the star of your story and surround it with a bunch of bang-bang shoot 'em up The uh, screenwriter wrote back and said, well, as far as he was concerned, it was an escape story. And as soon as he got off the planet, that's the end of it. And he said, we're essentially writing for the bubble gum and pimple crowd. I had never heard such contempt for an audience in my life. I just cut off all communication, so... However the thing turned out uh, is partly my fault. But by the time I got out of rehab, I guess it was about three months after I got out of rehab, they sent me a copy of the screenplay. I really wanted to love this screenplay. And I sat down and started reading this thing. I was about three pages into that sucker before I thought someone had gone to a lot of trouble to play a really bad joke on me. And I, I went through that thing and and suddenly, instead of uh, you know, instead of my story, they went and ripped off a movie called Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and they come up with this this mine with these slave children. There's no mine in Enemy Mine, you know. I try to explain to these people, Enemy Mine is like you know, oh mine, papa, you know, it's not a mine. But the screenplayer, screenwriter thought that. This story needed a mine in it, and it didn't appear in the movie, but it was in the screenplay, what they were mining in the enemy mine. And I'm sitting here reading this, you know, well, these two great races are fighting this horrible intergalactic war, or interstellar war, over this valuable mineral called silicon. I said, silicon? You mean sand? That screenwriter was from... Hollywood nearby is a valuable place called Silicon Valley, and so silicon must be valuable stuff, you know. Oh, Jesus, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I sat down and I wrote a letter to King's Road Productions. I offered to come up with a screenplay 
for nothing, you know, just to avoid this. And uh, I never got a response on that. And so basically uh, I washed my hands of the whole affair. When did you see the movie or have you seen it yet? I saw it in Portland uh, oh, shortly after it was released. That was my big premiere. And it didn't turn out as horrible as the screenplay. Yeah, I mean, they dropped the uh, silicon thing. We never do find out what they were mining in the enemy mine. <laughs> but what was funny is uh, a couple years, or maybe a year or so after that, uh, I was guest of honor at L.A. Con in Los Angeles. An interviewer there asked me if uh, the inspiration for enemy mine came from Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And I said, uh Probably not, because I'd never seen Robinson Crusoe on Mars. But a few months later, uh, my wife was off visiting her parents in Detroit, and I was sitting there in Farmington, uh, and Robinson Crusoe on Mars came on the TV. So I sat and watched this. And it was a pretty good movie, until we got to the little mine at the end with the slave child. Oh, my God. It's the last third of the movie, Enemy Mine, was ripped off from Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I just wanted to hide under the bed. It was actually, you know, the first time I saw Enemy Mine, you know, I was very relieved because it wasn't as bad as the screenplay. Uh, then the uh, local animal shelter in Farmington had the thing on, and with me signing autographs there, a special performance, you know, to benefit the animal shelter, and uh, so I got to see it again. And it wasn't as bad as the screenplay, but it was bad. <laughs> After watching about a third of the way in, I left. God. Uh, I'm really curious where the Tomorrow Testament came from and how it was revisiting. It wasn't the same characters, but it was the same world with the Drax and the humans. The Tomorrow Testament has a strange, uh, owes its existence to a kind of stubbornness on my part. I think I was at ReaderCon Boston at one of the conventions down there, and one of the one of the questions I was asked at the workshop I was doing there is, you know, why don't you use more female protagonists in your stories? And I said, you know, you know, well, I I, I didn't say what I wanted to say, but essentially it was because <laughs> I'm I'm not a woman. But when uh, the uh, idea. For, so basically, it was I wanted a story from a man's point of view, a woman's point of view, and a Drax's point of view. And that that's how it evolved. Originally, uh, I was thinking of uh, a man's point of view for the Tomorrow Testament, but uh, and I, I asked myself, does it make any difference, you know, to the overall story, whether this character is a male or female? I said, no. So I decided to make it a female character. And after 10,000 words, I read over it, and I had 10,000 words of me in drag. It was awful. Basically, uh, actually, I had to write uh, two additional books before I could write the uh, Tomorrow Testament. Uh, one was uh, what, I, what, you, what you have in the enemy papers called the Talman, and the other book was basically uh, the story of Joanne Nicole before the beginning of the Tomorrow Testament, you know, from when she was born and grew up and everything with her family and stuff until she could enter the story as a 
fully developed character rather than as a female protagonist. I got to admit, after that first 10,000 words, I was sitting there thinking, why don't I just make this a guy? <laughs> the trouble is, uh, as bad as they were, that first 10,000 words, once my characters are real to me, I can't kill them off unless it serves the story. <laughs> what was that uh, story of her before the Tomorrow Testament begins, and was that published? Oh, it wasn't. For every page of published stuff of mine, I must have five or six pages of uh, notes and uh, background stuff that I've written. A little bit of an outline of it is in the Tomorrow Testament. Uh, you will just see little recall stuff or little background stuff. It's basically the kind of stuff where uh, once you know a character in depth, you know you can pull out what you need to flesh out a character in a story. Did you have the idea for the third book in mind at the time of the second book, or did that come to you much later? Because it was, what, 15 years? It came much later. It, it was uh, one of the... Uh, a friend of mine had written a book, and he wanted me to do a blurb on it. And I, and I don't just do blurbs on book. I'll read the thing, and, uh, and then I'll tell the guy what my opinion is. And, you know, you still want it? You know, <laughs> The kind of lying you do in promotion and stuff like that, very repellent, which is one reason why politics and I have a real tough time. Uh, his story was about a group of uh, the planet settled by Jews. They have their own uh, strike forces and stuff like that, and they are like mercenaries that uh, hire out this, that. And, and there's a statement at the end of his book, which is essentially... The tribe is everything. The tribe comes before truth, comes before what's right, comes before science, sanity, or anything else. The tribe comes first. And what I told him was, this is where you need to start your story, because that's the problem you need to solve. Because as long as that premise is there, uh, there's no such thing like a solution to the Middle East or anything else. All of the uh, tribal-based conflicts in the world, which, uh, you know, we're, we're up to our assholes in them right now. There's no solution to it as long as the tribe is first. The tribe is the last enemy, the concept of it. You know, I told him, you know, that basically uh, this is what you need. You know, you need to have a character, you know, to put together something in the, you know, like in the Middle East or something and uh, start a way to solve the problem. And he said any, any Jew who actually tried to make peace in the Middle East would be killed in an instant. And it suddenly occurred to me that there are a whole lot of people, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's they just don't want a solution or they think any kind of solution is impossible. And that, that chewed in my head until uh, the idea for The Last Enemy came up. So I guess in a way it was accidental that it was came from the that the enemy papers came from the point of view of a man, a woman, and a drag. Uh, that's how it came. I, I, I suppose a lot of inspiration uh, for the uh, the last enemy, besides taking on the challenge that I laid on the other guy that he never picked up on, was uh, the tone I got from two books. All Quiet on the Western Front, Maria, Eric, Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, and the other one was 
Guy Sager, S-A-J-E-R, uh, who wrote The Forgotten Soldier. Now, yeah, I mixed that all together, and I came up with my uh, character who uh, wants to find an answer. He wants to, but then it also seems like he has to. He's been thrust into that position where he needs to fulfill that. Basically, it's uh, one of those be careful what you pray for kind of things because it was the kind of thing where, okay, I want to do this. You know, every now and then when you're following out a thread, you run into a few knots. I've read these stories in the Enemy Papers, which collects all three of them, plus uh, bits of uh, the Talmud. They flow together like you wrote them one day to the next. And did you have to go back and finesse these uh, stories that were written almost, you know, the first one is uh, late 70s and the last one is 1997, but yet they flow together so well? For some reason, uh, Enemy Mine stuck clear in my head, and so was the Tomorrow Testament. Both of their uh, contributions to uh, The Last Enemy and by then, uh, I was a lot older by then, too. And so was uh, the character of Dovage. It certainly wasn't planned. I wanted to take on the challenge that I had laid on this guy because he didn't pick up on it. Well, I'm very curious, too, as far as your latest book series, which also deals a lot with war, the War Whisperer series. And how did that one come about, and do you see many parallels between the enemy papers and what you're doing now? The War Whisperer uh, began when I was uh, 21 years old, sitting there lying on my bunk on a little pimple of an island in the East China Sea called Tokushiki-jima uh, when I was in the Army, trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I had a really modest goal which was to save the world. And uh, while I was sitting there, uh, uh, I was asking myself questions. Okay, save the world from what? And what would saving the world be? And this, this started a whole train of uh, stuff that I, there was a, a hell of a lot I had to learn uh, before I could tackle any of this stuff. And it was, it was a project I had kicking around back there, uh, in my head, not necessarily for writing. I, initially, I was thinking in terms of revolution, political activism. Uh, it was always kicking around there, and when, uh, uh, I don't know, it was, let's see, it was six, uh, six years ago, uh, a little more than six years ago, but well, I, horrendous health problems, the things I've had. I was thinking, you know, if I'm ever going to do this project, I better get the hell on with it, because the big clock is ticking. I thought it was going to be, you know, just like one book, maybe a couple hundred thousand words long, three quarters of a million words later. You know, like I said, I got no control over word word length. Uh, there were was, was some really important questions I had to find answers to. And one of the things that I have this framework now that makes the discussion that we're having with, uh, you know, the, the politics and the and the debates that really scary is that the different definitions uh, of freedom being used. Now, in, in the War Whisperer, the definition of freedom we're using is basically, you know, increasing choices by increasing prosperity. A definition they're using for freedom, certainly in the 
democratic debates is increasing the freedom of some by diminishing it to others, which used to be called slavery. <laughs> and of course, they, you know, they got a good history of that. But uh, the thing, the things that I don't know, I'm kind of proud of a number of things in that book. One is the application of asymmetric warfare being operated by a superpower that was in, uh, that it, it basically is, uh, uh, you know, it was, as I was writing this thing, uh, this idea came up, and, you know, so I decided to invent a whole new kind of warfare and get that in there. And the other was uh, in in the fifth book, The Hook, which is the hardest, that book, that single volume took two and a half years of my life simply because I, I was jammed with this problem. If your premise for a society is the initiation of physical force is never legal, how in the hell does this society defend itself, you know, against invasion from an, uh, an outside force, such as Mexico, who wants its state back? You know, you can't use conscription, you can't use taxation, uh, you can't use eminent domain, you know, to acquire defensive positions and things like that. All the, all the tools that, you know, are traditionally used, you, you can't use. So how in the hell do you do it? One of the things that I do, which is why I usually have millions of words worth of drafts, but I don't save them. Thanks God, they're electronic now, so I don't have to pile them up. One of the things I do when I'm jammed, uh, really solid like this, is I will go back, say, to the beginning of the current volume, or uh, even back, I, in this particular case, I went back to the beginning. Uh, I rewrote the first four books, I don't know how many times, uh, I didn't even keep count, trying try to build up the momentum to do the uh, the fifth book. I don't exactly know what triggered it, but it suddenly occurred to me, somewhere along the line, that all the answers I needed uh, were in the previous books. And so I pieced them together, and bingo, came up with the asymmetrica defensa. <laughs> You are nothing if not ambitious. I mean, coming up with an entire new way of war in this series and then coming up with an entire new religion in the enemy papers. It's just, I was flabbergasted to read those quotes from the Talma and just how complete everything felt. Yeah, well, an awful lot of that stuff in the Talma is in current human philosophy, too. Well, the thing was that I originally intended uh, the whole thing to come out as one book, and there was just no way I could, unless I used two-point type, there was no way I could get the whole thing in one volume. There was an old agent I had fired some decades ago uh, who called me up, and he, uh, he had gotten a, uh, an inquiry about the rights to uh, a story of mine, and I sent him the information, but he was wanted to know what I was working on. I told him about the War Whisperer. I just I had just finished it, and uh, or I was near finishing it, and he uh, said he'd like to look at it. And I said okay. So I went and printed out that whole thing. Uh, it came out to about a good thirty-five pounds worth of paper, <laughs> and uh, and I, I sent it off the whole bunch off to him. And he called when it arrived. He said the UPS man had a hernia, <laughs> you know, delivering it. 
but he he read the first book and he, he couldn't get a handle on on what it was. You know, he's think he, he's he's looking for a genre label to stick on it, and in a very strict sense, it's not science fiction any more than Atlas. Actually, Atlas Shrugged was more science fiction than this is, because purposefully. What happens in the establishment of the first Freeland and all that stuff isn't dependent on uh, any technological advancements other than what we have right now. And although, you know, it gets better as there are technological advancements, but the progress of the thing isn't dependent on them. And that, that was purposeful. When uh, he, he, he couldn't figure out what to do with it, so we sent it back. And uh, I formatted the things, and in the process of formatting them for publication, I read through it again, and I had forgotten uh, how sick I was for an awful lot of the book. And the, uh, the there are there were sentences in there and paragraphs that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. I'm just sitting here. Well, what did I mean by that? <laughs> I I couldn't figure it out, and. Uh, so basically, I rewrote the whole thing as I did it one at a time, and and got them uh, got them in print. But I wanted to get them out real close together because uh, uh, I hate I hate I remember what was that called Winds of War uh, an awful lot of years ago. Uh, I can't remember the author's name. Came out with a book called Winds of War. When he finally came out with the second part of that, the two part book. The second part, I don't know, was more than a year later. And I had forgotten what was in the first part. So I never did read the second part because I couldn't piece it together. <laughs> Basically, I wanted, wanted the people who read it to be able to uh, remember what went before by the time they got to the next one. So they, they came out about, oh, a week to ten days apiece apart. How many projects do you have going on at the same time, or do you just stick to one thing and focus on that the entire way through? Well, in this particular case, I had to focus on the War Whisperer to the detriment of everything else. I didn't update my website. Uh, I didn't keep track of anything else, uh, promotion, sales or anything, and projects around the house, things that needed to be repaired. You know, basically all I did was you know, uh, write on the book and take trips to doctor's offices and take his little visits to hospitals. It was a tough six years, but I'm very tickled that I lived long enough to finish it because that that was not uh, a sure thing. And you have mentioned your website a couple of times. Um, Do you keep that up to date a little bit more now, and do you blog often? Because I saw that you also blog. Uh, well, I've got a uh, writer's blog on there that I, I haven't put anything in that new for a long time, but I've got a recovery blog, Life Sucks Better Clean, that uh, when the spirit moves, I put something additional in there. Uh, I, I had uh, uh, written a, a meditation book for recovery, uh, which is called uh, Yesterday's Tomorrow Recovery uh, Meditations for Hard Cases. Uh, this is basically all the all the dirty jokes and and and, and filthy stuff and, and rip-snorting, ass-kicking stuff that I heard in the program, you know, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, that never seemed to make it into the meditation books. The meditation books that are put out by the program 
uh, and different recovery outfits, you always sound like, oh, gee, now that we're clean and life is perfect and I'm so perfect and everything, you know, and, you know, goody two-shoes and, you know, like there are never any more problems. And uh, I remember the uh, editor at Hazelden who published uh, Yesterday's Tomorrow, he wrote back and said, this looks like the meetings that I go to. <laughs> and uh, Life Sex Better Clean is more of the same. Years ago, I proposed to Hazelton to come up with another meditation book called Life Sucks Better Clean. They're still a little prudish about the title, but I was at a science fiction convention down there in Alfred, Maine, and I put it to the people there, you know, uh, I wanted to use this title, Life Sucks Better Clean. What should I do? And it was unanimous. They wanted Life Sucks Better Clean because this is a, uh, I don't know, this is a saying in Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, which is basically, okay, you got problems, and there are still things that drive you up the wall and, and issues, but it works better if you're clean. Life still sucks here and there, but better clean. And uh, they wanted that, so it's, it's, I'm sticking to that. I'm, I've, I've got enough of the meditations now. That I'm about ready to present it as a manuscript in uh, uh, one of these days in my copious free time put it together as another meditation book and, and, and approach Hazelden again. Uh, I owe them that much. Uh, and if they don't go for the title uh, the second time, uh, I'll just stick it out like I did the War Whisperer. I love modern publishing. It, it's great to go from 5% uh, royalty to 50% or 60 or 70% royalty. It, and I, uh, thankfully, I, I had enough readers who still remember me to buy my stuff and encourage my behavior. So it, it, what's bad about it, though, is uh, I, I really would love to have a copy editor. Because, you know, the, well, that's what got me when I was formatting the books and I was reading through it. And I was like, holy crap, one of the things I discovered is that I have an it's-it's problem. IT apostrophe S versus ITS. And I, I wrote a book called uh, uh, The Writer's Paint Box where I discuss this particular problem. I, I think my computer is plotting against me or something. But, it, uh, you know, when you're writing in the heat of the moment there, you know, the fingers just, just shoot apostrophes wherever they want. <laughs> but, you know, basically uh, what I did with each one of those books, though, you know, I did a search for it, and I went through each one to make sure it was, properly used, and then I did a it's with apostrophe S, did the same thing, and a couple other uh, things like that, through, through, and thorough, and, <laughs> boy, the boy, were they in boring sessions, God. Mr. Longyear, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Well, you thank you very much, and uh, I was glad to do it. It was fun to be able, like I said, I get to talk with a lot of squirrels up here, and I don't get much time to talk about my writing with anybody, but just about everybody here uh, that I know is pretty much tired of hearing me talk about my writing, so basically I have to talk about main things now, you know, cold enough for you, you know, can't get here from there, you know. Up next, we're going to hear from the original director of Enemy Mine, 
Richard Longcrane. The projects that you're working on right before this, and as far as I know, that was Brimstone and Treacle and The Missionary. It looks like both of those came out in 1982. How did that happen? Well, I think it's what cost me my first marriage. I did took the both movies back to back. I wasn't home for two years, basically. Thank God my my first wife is my best friend apart from my wife. And uh, so uh, we, I, I, to say I'm proud of my divorce isn't exactly accurate, but it's close. We managed to fuck the marriage up. Well, I did, but we managed to get the divorce quite quite well organized. Um, so we've got five kids between us, my present wife, the incumbent, Mrs. Longcrane. Uh, we've got two kids and I have three with my first wife, Judy. So that's nice. So, yeah, I was a, it was a very... You know, I I guess I was ambitious. I probably still am, but not with the same uh, level of uh, energy that I was in those days. They were really shot almost back to back. I think I was starting prep on one and editing another. I, you know, the, the 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 stupidity of youth. I thought that was fine. Well, it isn't fine. You know, you you can't concentrate. It's probably why um, both movies had have something to be uh, leave something to be desired. There's good things in both of them in different ways, I think. So, yeah, I was probably, and I don't remember how close Enemy Mine came to came to those. Uh, must have been fairly close, but I don't have diaries going back that long. Were you the natural choice to direct this big-budget sci-fi film? I don't know. I can't remember how it came my way. I don't think I was with my same agent. I am now Jenny Cazzarotto. So I was probably with William Morris. What were the English connections? I remember it was um, it was Fox, wasn't it, uh, that produced it. There was a guy, the producer. Let's get the stuff up on uh, on Enemy Mind. Who the who the producers were? Um, there were some pretty pretty roguish people involved in it. I have to say. Well, the guy who produced it, the line producer, was a real rogue. He's dead now, and he was not a nice man. He was crook, basically. His name was, I think his name was Stan O'Toole. Quite a track record. But then the, the Hollywood end of it, um, Fox, there was a guy called, who produced it, who's pretty powerful in Hollywood. He was uh, Bob Court. Before he got in the film business, I think he was an ex-CIA interrogator. He certainly lived, and I'm not joking, I think he, he certainly worked for CIA. I think he was an interrogator. I might have that wrong, but I think he was. He had no film experience whatsoever. And so uh, he was pretty difficult. Steve Friedman, yeah, he died. They're all nearly, well, I think O'Toole, um, O'Toole's died. And I think uh, the studio guy is still around. But I bumped into him some years ago at a party in Hollywood. And I did say, well, because, you know, I got fired off it, obviously. About about three weeks in, uh, it was quite a saga. I asked uh, to talk to you. Can you be sued for saying things about someone who's dead? You can't, can you? Well, Stan O'Toole was an arsehole. He got caught, as far as I know. For, he worked with a, a guy who was a, a con- construction manager, an Irish guy who was a sweetheart. And they had a kind of pact. They did several. They did a Disney movie. The story goes, and this might be, that they they got caught eventually. But Disney never took them to court. They both dead. They laid a mile of tarmac road in Scotland to a location, but charged the studio for 10 miles of road you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, and they got caught. But they foolishly didn't pay the tarmac, probably some gypsies, to do it. Um, so they never paid them, and so the, whoever did the tarmacking turned them into the studios. But the studios never took them to court because they didn't want the embarrassment of being so stupid. But it was a, it was quite an amazing project. 
the studio were, so were completely, Steve Friedman, what was the name of his company? Um, he was a complete lunatic. Oh, I know. I remember him at a meeting and we were talking about spacecraft, you know, science. And he said, well, how do we do this? He said, why don't we just put spacecraft everywhere in the shard? And then if we pan around, we might find one. He was really quite remarkable in his incompetence. So you had Steve Friedman, who, who really was a lunatic, quite charming man. You had Bob Court, who's a studio executive, who, um, well, I think I've said it all by saying I think his first job was a CIA uh, interrogator. We became quite close friends, you know, the family on holiday shit. And so when he stabbed me in the back, I was pretty hurt. It was my first, I'd be fired twice in my working life, once on that and once by De Niro, uh, by De Niro on Analyze This. That was before I, um, I got the movie greenlit for them. And then De Niro decided he'd like his friend to direct it. So um, he certainly lived up to his mafia reputations, Mr. De Niro. Charming man, but um, you wouldn't want to um, be too close to him when it came to um, certain decisions. Let's put it that way. So um, so we had Stan O'Toole, who was the English line producer, and the studio had given him total signatory on all the accounts on the film to him and his the accountant and the accountant and he, and he had been working together for about 10 years so they were hand in glove to say that um, money was um you know going in strange places and um, was they kept trying to blackmail not blackmail me they didn't try that they kept trying to bribe me i kept giving me sort of would you like take a camera what's that take that home with you you'd like that what do you want a vcr do you want another so i was constantly getting these gifts which i was I don't know. I was very suspicious about. Didn't really think. Probably did take some home. It didn't occur to me that that wasn't what you were meant to do. But Stan and I fell out quite early on. I think because he obviously had. He liked to make movies very easily. He wanted the film to be set in Lanzarote. Do you think it's where they ended up shooting it with Wolfgang? Then Stan could sit in the hotel by the hotel pool and have a nice time. The idea of going to Iceland, where I wanted to set it, on a remote island called Jaime, which was a volcanic, still-erupting island, was not Stan's idea of, a, of the way he liked to make movies. So um, it went quite strange. Brian Morris was a production designer, and they kept sort of trying to do things with Brian financially of how this would be paid for. Anyway, it all came to a head because we, to build these very complex sets, we were building them uh, behind the Iron Curtain in what was in Zagreb. I think it was Zagreb, pretty sure it was Zagreb. And we went out there and we, you know, it was under under communism and it was very cheap. But the problem was you couldn't get things. So you would, one day you would have like a lorry load of nails would arrive for building the set but you weren't allowed to use the photocopier because it was too dangerous for the regime. So there were no photocop photocopiers allowed on in the art department. And, you know, one day there'd be nails, the next day there wouldn't be any nails, and then there would be hammers, and then all the hammers would, be, would go back or they'd be broken. It was chaos, complete chaos. And Brian said it's, you know, Brian was out there, I wasn't out there most of the time, I just visited. It. it all came to a head because I found, I think via Brian Morris, that the studio were being charged $5 million for set construction, but the real cost was $2.5 million, and the rest was being divided amongst certain people, including the communist bosses. Um, and I told the studio what was happening because it was ruining the movie, and uh, I was naive, I guess, um, and the studio said, don't be ridiculous, 
young man, because I was only in my 20s or early 30s, you know, these are experienced people, um, you're an idiot, go back to work, and told Stan what I'd said. Well, you can imagine after that, my life was not going to last very long as a director on that movie. So Stan got me fired, and we were only been shooting for, well, we could not, because nothing was ready, and again, naivety, rather than saying, well, we're not ready, we haven't got the main scenes, let's shoot, I said, well, just to work, let's do some, you know, walk-bys, you know, people walking across hillsides, because we had no spacecraft to shoot because it wasn't finished and hadn't been shipped out from from Zagreb. So I did all these sort of walk-bys, um, and the studio, or Stan obviously said, you know, the guy can't do anything decent, look, these, this is what he's done in two days. Well, that's what I'd done in two or three days because there was nothing else to film. So I got a, after, I think it was a week or maybe two weeks, uh, he came and said the studio decided to replace you. It was quite a shock because I was working, I was worked pretty hard, but, and the material was just remarkably interesting stuff because it was very hard. I mean, you're talking about, you know, a landscape that was still moving while you were filming on it. So, you know, you'd have lava flowing at the back of the shot and it wasn't an effect. It was real. Uh, and there were storms coming in. There was ice flowing in from the sea and, you know, waves freezing. There's a wonderful, rather nice story about Dennis, Dennis, who I'm very fond of. Um, Hugh, uh, Lou Gossett Jr. is another story. Um, not a man I would recommend working with. Um, but Dennis was lovely. I mean, he's a good old boy, uh, and he likes to play golf probably more than he likes to act, but he's very good at it when he decides to. But we were working on, um, a film not that long ago called, um, Special Relationship for HBO, uh, with, um, Martin Sheen playing Blair and, um, Dennis playing uh, Clinton and we're talking about the film and he said, you know, you got a kind of raw end of the deal there, Dick. And I said, yeah, I did. But he was, um, there was one scene I remember when Dennis was, uh, he was tied up on this beach with horizontal kind of rain coming in. Uh, it was incredibly cold and he, um, uh, he was tied up with, with seaweed by the drack, uh, in the, in the scene we were doing. And suddenly the, the storm came in and we had to, I had to say, cut, cut, get, get Dennis off the beach, get him, get a, you know, get a coat round him. He said, no, no, leave me here, leave me here. I want to, I want to, I want to feel what it's like to be chained up onto a beach in freezing weather, what it would really be like. I said, okay, Dennis. So anyway, about half an hour later, we, uh, I'm going off. I come back and I see two prop men staggering across the beach carrying this enormous battery. It's about three foot long. I said, what's that? Where are you going? They said, it's for Dennis's heated suit. So Dennis had changed his mind about method acting, and uh, from then on, I think he kept himself in the caravan as much as he could. I never got to shoot much in the way of dialogue. I'm not sure there was any, because it's when they first met, I think. So it was generally grunting. I'm sure there was some dialogue. I haven't got a copy of the screenplay either. So I got fired. Uh, I'll never forget it, really. We were in this hotel, and he told me, which was quite a long way from Reykjavik Airport, and I... Yeah, I guess I was in a state of shock, and I thought, what can I do? So I threw a party. I rang all the crew who were staying in the same enormous old hotel. I said, look, I've been fired, but I'd like to say thank you to all. And I threw this enormous party where I, I you know, it wasn't expensive, paid for drinks and supper. And I remember playing the spoons and singing Cockney songs. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life to try and keep my and show. I wanted to burst into tears and probably did do at times. And the drive, I can still remember the drive in the taxi from after the party finished to Reykjavik to get the plane. Uh, it was a pretty depressing, the sun, because it was kind of midnight sun in those days, uh, with the sun right bouncing on the, uh, on the uh, horizon across the mountains. So it wasn't a happy, uh, it wasn't a happy memory for me at all. 
It could have been a special movie. I mean, what I wanted to do was make the first performance movie in space because, you know, I, I was always love working with actors and the story was a great idea. I remember two images that I sold to the studio was in the one image was the uh, Dennis Quaid and his fighter aircraft that would be a equivalent of a Polaroid photograph stuck on the dashboard or the controls of his farm in Iowa with the kind of grain silos, him and him with his ma and pa and, an, you know, a tractor. I was trying to get the feeling that these were not sort of science fiction creatures, but real people in 50, 100, whatever years time. And the drag in my memory, I don't know if it was that in the script, but he was a librarian. So this monster was a guy, you know, like people who get called up to Vietnam. They weren't soldiers. Most of them were ordinary men and women, or men, I guess, largely, who just had jobs, librarians and taxi drivers and farmers. So I was trying to make something which was about people and not about spacecraft. That may have been my downfall. I'm not sure the studio saw it that way because, of course, Star Wars was the, you know, was what we were following. But that was what I was was trying to do. You said that Luke Gossett Jr. was not pleasant to work with. No, he wasn't pleasant to work with, no. He was an arrogant prick, to be honest. He was lazy. He wouldn't come to rehearsals. And at one point, I remember, he actually phoned up and said his child had been involved in a road accident, and that's why he was late, and his child hadn't been involved in a road accident. It takes a very special kind of person, I think, to actually say that, to use their child as an excuse for not coming to rehearsals. But no, he was a mean motherfucker, to be honest. And I'm glad to see his career has not done well. I mean, I have this theory. I talk to students and you, and I always tell them that, you know, when you start out, you have to not be an, an arsehole because if, once you've made the millions and millions of the studio, you can be as big an arsehole as you want. They don't care. But until you have done, there's a point where you think you're at that. But if you're difficult enough with a few people, then suddenly your career just stops. Uh, his acting, I guess, was all right. Didn't get a chance to see much, but he certainly didn't want rehearsals and he hated I don't blame him for this he hated being put in prosthetics you know because uh, he had about two or three out two hours in the chair at least every morning so I think he was pretty pissed off at that but he certainly made everyone's life pretty unpleasant around him I don't want to just continue to pick at old wounds but do you mind if I read to you some things that I've heard about the movie and then you can tell me whether they're true or not true Sure, absolutely. Well, one thing I can tell you, because uh, I don't like Wolfgang Peterson either, because I think he made the thing you shouldn't do. He he was soon after I got fired. He went in the press and said, "I have seen Long Crane's uh, material, and I understand now why they fired him." Which is not what you do to other directors, you know. You you keep your mouth shut and and you know creative differences. So I he's not my favourite human being either. I usually like people. I have to say, well, I like Dennis very much. But it was um, it was a den of thieves. Otherwise, please carry on. No, no, you can be. It's far enough away that I can probably take the the uh, searing pain of whatever. Well, this is an easy one. The film's original budget was the, was only seventeen million dollars at the start of the production when Richard Longcrane was the director, and production was set in Iceland. When he was fired from the project, and Wolfgang Peterson took over the film and started over, the film's final budget, including Longcrane's scrapped footage, ballooned to over forty million dollars. Well, yeah, I'm sure it did. Um, they're lucky they got away that cheaply. Well, first of all, they, uh, Peterson scrapped everything we've done. So they scrapped all the sets in, in Zagreb. So that was at least $5 million. Uh, they put all the crew, I think, I think they closed down for several, a, a month or several months. 
they brought the whole thing back to London, which was uneconomic. I mean, I was looking at a photograph before you called of, I think it's H stage with an interior set on it. You can't close a picture down and start it up again. It was also vastly under budgeted. I mean, you couldn't have had more incompetent people in terms of the, uh, well, the line producer was a crook and, um, the, the studio didn't know what they were doing. In fact, Bob Cord admitted he didn't know what they were doing. When I saw him at this party a few years back and I said, Bob, it was a bit of a mess. He said, yeah, we shouldn't have fired you. It was, um, kind of, we didn't really know what we were doing in those days. And they didn't. And Steve Friedman was a lunatic. Um, and I'm talking about, I quite liked him, but he was completely mad. I mean, you know, um, a, a bit like a sort of comedy uh, springtime for Hitler producer. Um, it made some quite successful movies, as I think. But yeah, uh, no, I'm not surprised it cost that money. I think they got away quite lightly. I'm pleased to see they spent 40 million, but it only made 12 million. So that was a good, that was a good outcome. I'm pleased about that. The film doesn't look like it should have cost 40 million it looks like it was all shot on sound stages well it was most of it yeah uh i i you know i've never seen it no i've never seen it uh, i probably could now maybe i will look at it i should have looked at it uh before this really uh, it just occurred to me i don't think i ever saw it i guess the wounds were too oh, maybe i did see it you know i can't really remember it's a long time ago uh, yeah i mean i think peterson i thought das boat was a good piece of work but i'm not really sure after that i felt he cut the mustard with much that he did i thought the thing with the with the flying haddock in the air was truly dreadful what was it called the film he did a sort of a, a, a german fantasy film a children's book oh never ending story yeah i thought that was truly dreadful so i've never been a fan of his work but he, he isn't of mine obviously Gossett allegedly said uh, that you directed yourself into a corner because of the weather he couldn't shoot anything that matched and um yeah, they would still be there today. Uh, yeah, good point. No, I think they, he didn't like the fact that, well, you could write things that match because it was shitty weather all the time. Um, yeah, it was a tough location, but it was, uh, uh, I don't think it was any tougher than, was it Seven Days of the Condor? There are plenty of movies that of people have gone through a lot more, worse than we did. You know, we're all staying in perfectly nice hotels and, being fed very well with catering and, you know, it wasn't exactly what I would call guerrilla filmmaking. It was if you were a spoiled, you know, a spoiled filmmaker, uh, and like to, um, shuffle around. But no, it was, it was very tough. We were behind schedule because we couldn't shoot anything because we didn't have a set. Um, I think the actual spacecraft arrived not very well built. I think uh, the day or two days before I was fired. I talked with Barry Longyear last week and he was, not very happy that there had to be a literal mine in a movie called Enemy Mine. Were you working under that assumption as well, that there was going to be a mine in the movie? Well, that's not what Enemy Mine means. It means enemy as in my 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 friend, my enemy. It wasn't not in my version, there wasn't. There were just two of them on a planet trying to... It was only two actors in it. You never saw... No, there was just two, there were never any more than two characters. Because the, the drat gives birth to a, because he's a hermaphrodite, he becomes pregnant, doesn't he? Has a child, and he dies in childbirth, and then Quaid uh, brings up the child, that the the drat's child. Is that not what happens in the in the Wolfgang Peterson version? You're getting right to the end of the second act, and then the third act is this whole thing about these horrible people that are on the planet and Brian Jones is there as this heavy who has all these Drax enslaved 
Dennis Quaid is rescued at one point and then he steals a ship and has to come back to the planet and rescue the the child. There's something about who was the what's ringing a bell is one of the guys was a wonderful actor who I think sadly is gone now who played the baddie in it. Yeah, Brian James. He is amazing. Brian James. Yeah, Brian James. I cast Brian James. And uh, I think I cast most of them. He was he's a great. Is he still alive? No, sadly he's not. Yeah, he was a great actor. Nice man, too. I said there are some people I like in the film, but I don't think we ever got to work together um, on the film. I'm not sure we did. Um, wow. Yeah. So Enemy Mine. Yes, I'm I'm I'll have to look and see. I wonder if there's any versions of the screenplay I worked on. I'm very curious how you recovered from being fired on this. It must have been such a psychological blow for you, especially at this point in your career. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, I went, I went cycling in, uh, in the Himalayas, in Nepal. I got on a bike. That's what I've always loved cycling. I, 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 I built a bike, I think, put it together, flew to, uh, to Kathmandu and then went up and cycled around the Kathmandu Valley, which is a big area, you know, to Pokhara. Went up to base camp and walked up to, um, Nauchi Bazaar and, uh, it's quite a leveler, the Himalayas. You know, it sort of puts Hollywood and all the shit that goes with it. And I quite like Hollywood. I'd say one of those Brits that actually likes, I don't mind L.A. I kind of quite enjoy it. And I kind of know what to expect out of Hollywood. And I've got some good friends there. I think it's true you tend to make deals, not friends in Hollywood, but not entirely true. There are people there I'm really fond of, you know. Um, So I think going to the Himalayas was quite a good move. I came back. I don't know what I did next after that. I'm not sure. What film did I make next? Next thing that I know of, you did a, a video for Sting. And then also, uh, then after that was Bellman and True. But that wasn't until 87. So how many years? So two years. I probably didn't work. You know, when you get fired in Hollywood, I mean, after I got, after De Niro fired me, I didn't work for four years. It's an interesting story. I'm basically, I got the, I got the movie greenlit. They've been trying for f- two years to get, um, I know it's not about enemy mind, but I'll tell you if you want to hear it. Um, they've been trying, they've been trying to get, um, analyze this greenlit and the script they had in here and crystal. It was after Richard III and I was the flavor of the month for about a week, if you, if that makes any sense. And so I got this movie from, what's it, Warners. It was then the two, two guys running Warners and uh, they've been trying for years to get it greenlit. And the script was just not a very good script. And the studio said it's not good enough. So I was charged with now, uh, both De Niro and Crystal are complex men. Is that perhaps the best way of putting it? Um, and both had their own agendas and their own favorite writers. So I had to work with one writer. I think it was De Niro's writer first. And he wrote, I think it was, he writes the Gary Shandling show. I think it was his. Uh, and uh, no, it was the other way around. It was, it was Crystal's writer. And he wrote a draft and it had some good. Oh, I know. He, he flew to London. And the first thing he said to me was, Look, I just want to get my money and get home, <laughs> which was not what I really wanted to hear as an enthusiastic film director. Um, so he did his pass and it you know, had some good humor, didn't work. So we then moved on to uh, De Niro's writer, whose name he wrote Midnight Run, uh, which was a very clever movie. But the guy was a complete nutter. And he wrote a pass and he wrote it in his garage with a Spanish guy writing it down as he walked up and down. It was quite a strange writing process. Um, 
And that didn't work either. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to go home. I was living at the Chateau Marmont at the time, which was my home from home. It was, you know, quite a cheap place to stay in those days. And uh, my wife said, well, why don't you try and write it? And I thought, well, because I'd always written on everything, really, but I never, I don't believe directors should take writing credits. It's like, and I think directing should be the credit. It's enough, you know. You're meant to be able to help with everything. And, you know, so I uh, I did on Richard III because I really did. It's ironic because Richard III was Shakespeare, so it's strange that I took a credit, but uh, for reasons that we can go into later. Um, anyway, so I sat down in the chateau for about a week or 10 days, and I put together the best, and there was some good stuff in the other drafts. Let's not be lie about that. But it didn't work as a screenplay, so I put it together, put my stuff, put you know, probably twenty percent of me, I think, no more, twenty five percent. But as a hopefully a reasonable filmmaker, I got a story out of it, and I sent it into the studio. And I think it was a Thursday morning, and I got a phone call Friday morning from the secretary of these two guys who ran the studio in tandem. Said they want you over here straight away, please. So I got in my car and thought, well, okay, well, that this is the end of it. And as I came through the door, they were firing champagne at me like a racing driver from a magnet <laughs> champagne. I mean, I kid you not. And uh, they said, you've got 50 million, whatever it was, go and make your movie. So I was quite excited, to say the least. You know, they were very pleased with me. So I get on a plane, fly to New York. I go to Crystal's hotel room. Uh, where De Niro is, and De Niro opens the door and gives me a big hug, and he goes, hi, Dick, how you doing? You know, he's a big, very kind of big bear hug. He's only about three foot six, but it was a nice hug. And we sat down, I said, it's great, isn't it? Wonderful news. He said, yeah, 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 great news. And then Crystal comes out of the bathroom or the bedroom wherever he was changing, and uh, he was already complaining that, that Bob had got the lines that he thought he should have. They were they were passive-aggressive about each other all the time, you know, um, but they all thought they should have the other lines. And I said, so isn't it great? And he said, wonderful. And I said, so what do you, what do you think, um, Bob? Shall we say? He said, well, Dick, you're a nice guy, you know. I can't, I like you, and you're a nice guy. And but I've Harold Ramis and I have go back a long way. And I, I really think. I said, sorry. He said, well, Harold and I are very close. I said, are you firing me, Bob? He said, well, I think I'm moving on. Whoa. And he fired me off the movie. So yeah, pretty hurtful. That that hurt. Yeah, I did. I wish I'd fucking decked him. I really wish I had. If I bumped into him today and a movie came up he wanted to do, there was no resentment. It wasn't he didn't like me. He did like me. It was business. He's absolutely ruthless. He's like the characters he plays in his movies, you know. He uh, and I think if he, he would he would do it. I'm sure if I the right project came up and he was being paid his fee, he would work with me tomorrow. He just had absolutely no, no, I guess, morals, really, I suppose. And I. I, it was pretty hard. I didn't work for four years after that. And it was a big, big movie. And in fact, the real irony was that some years later, a couple of years, oh, some years later, I was in Hollywood and the guy who's, I'm not good with names at the studio who ran it, took me for lunch on something. And he said, you know, Richard, he said, the film had made 400 million by then. He said, you know, we'd never have made that movie without you. That kind of hurt. Oh, they paid me $25,000, by the way. That was my fee that they're paying me off. So um, they hardly paid the expenses. So that was uh, – they were two hard times. I mean, I, I, they were both real lessons in how you how life can be pretty – I mean, listen, I've had a wonderful career. I'm really grateful to the business. I've, you know, I've had great fun. I'm proud of the movies I've made. Some are better than others. I've never made a blockbuster or made, you know, hundreds of millions for the studios. Um, but I've really loved it, and I've made some great friends, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. But to say those – 
two moments of De Niro firing me and and the lovely Stan O'Toole. Oh, I know what I've got. And I, I know why Stan finally. I've, <laughs> I only myself self to blame. I just remember why Stan and I finally fell out. We were in a, a, a bus, a four-wheel drive bus with all the crew on a tech recce, I guess it was, uh, across in somewhere in Iceland, you know, 20 or 30 crew in the, in the bus, and I had to have a piss. So I got out, and there was, you know, snow everywhere, and I, I was having a, a quick wee, and I suddenly found I'd written an S in the snow. And before I could control myself, I'd written a T and then an A, and suddenly I'd written Stan in urine in the snow. And I looked up to see all the crew laughing through the window, except for Stan, who was watching through the window as well. But I don't think was laughing. And I think that was, I mean, you know, was I doing it viciously? I'm not sure if I was at that time. I might have been. Anyway, so I kind of deserved to be fired, really. But I'm sure that was what was my, signed my death knell, as it were, pissing Stan's name in the snow. My wife said it definitely was. And she's usually right about everything. It's aggravating how right your wife can be, isn't it? Really annoying. Yeah, I have to get a new one. This one is much too right too often. What are you working on these days? I decided that I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, uh, uh, both in my private life and in my working life. But this is really about my working life. And I kind of learned uh, it's what's so ironic. I mean, I'm doing a movie, hopefully a lovely script from a book called um, The Seven Samurai, a very complex book. Uh, uh, um, that will hopefully shoot uh, be next year, I'm sure, before we do it. Um, but that's going on, and I'm relaunching another a script I wrote uh, called Monsieur Rose, which is set in France. Which I wrote, it's, I wrote it so long ago that it's now topical again. But there is an advantage to getting old. But basically, as you get older, the business, you know, unless you've had a hit movie, and I had three, sort of three strikes, and you're out because I made what did I make? Well, the last movie. That was a big one. I mean, I did the last film was quite successful. It was an English film I did. Um, but, uh, the films before that weren't and they were big. Oh, Wimbledon, Firewall didn't make enough money. I mean, I think Wimbledon made, I don't know, 60 million and cost 40 or something. Um, and the other one made 150 and cost 50, the Harrison Ford one, but the studios wanted 350, you know? So it was deemed, they were deemed, uh, then I made it, um, my favorite, one of my probably favorite movies with Rene. Um, my one and only, which I thought was a really good film. She was wonderful. And, of course, we made it in 2008, and you couldn't give films away then because the world had collapsed and there were no independent buyers to buy the movies. So we um, it was relaunched with on a £2 million budget, million dollar budget, which isn't enough to launch a movie across America. Got great reviews, really did get great reviews, and just died of death, just couldn't keep going. But anyway, so three strikes and you're out, really. But what I was thinking about is that, I'm 73. I've made 16 movies and whatever, television, 600 commercials. Why don't I try and tell young filmmakers not about how you set up? You know, I'm watching Masterclass. Well, you know, the, the wonderful talks on there, um, Ron Howard, really good stuff. But it's about the creative side of directing. It's about, you know, how you, how you work with actors in, in a creative way, how you block out a scene, how you, how you, what lenses you use, how you track. And when, well, I thought it would be good to do a website. I'm doing a YouTube channel and the YouTube channel is called What Film School Won't Teach You. And it's about all the things I've learned that I've got wrong. For example, this is an example of the sort of things that are in it. And it's, it's like a hundred five minute, 10 minute little movies. When you're scheduling a movie, as a director, you're in, you should be involved in that because you have to approve the day's work. What's really important is 
is not whether you can get through the day's work. Of course, that's important. What's really important is finding out when the big, big football matches are and making sure the crew get off so they can watch it. And they're the kind of things that you have to know about. You have to know about, you know, what, what people's insecurities are and, and how you, uh, so I, I'm making a, a you know, a, a YouTube channel and it's, I'm launching it probably. I was going to launch it at the end in a few days time. I might wait now to this coronavirus has settled down hopefully a bit. Um, but I would be very grateful if you might, um, I'll send you links to it. If you think it's any good, you might give it a mention. Stephen Fry, um, who's a friend, I mentioned it to him the other day. He said, I said, Stephen, do you think you could mention it on Twitter? He said, of course I will. I said, so w- will that go to any many people? He said, well, 12.7 million at the moment. Yeah, he's got a huge Twitter following. So um, that was um, very sweet, Stephen. He's a lovely man. And, and uh, so I, I'm hoping people watch it. I mean, the kids might re- might reject it, but I hope they won't. I'm, I've done it in a way that's quite accessible, I think. And the antithesis of all the, of the very smart, you know, it's me sort of bumbling and disappearing out of the bottom of shot when when my teleprompt fails, I go and unplug it and plug it back in again and appear back in shot. So it's not exactly what you'd call elegant filmmaking, but they, I think it'll be more fun that way, more accessible. Anyway, so I, I digressed. Um, but what am I doing now? Well, I'm I'm working on that, which has been really quite a learning curve because I've never had a website. So I had a, I've just built my own website um, with all the films on it. And that to learn to do that was a while. And then I've been... Uh, shooting the, the, some of the videos and the intro. I'm definitely happier on the other side of the camera, not in front of it. It's definitely quite intimidating trying to talk, uh, to a camera for half. It's fine being interviewed, but when you're talking on your own in a room, it's not so easy. So I hope to work. I mean, I, I do, I keep busy all the time. I've always got something on the go. I'm into carpentry at the moment. I'm building a, an oak door for a friend of mine, with, you know, a proper oak front door. So I'm learning about carp. I've always done it, but I'm learning how to use, specific tools um i learned to fly a drone properly my son's a very successful camera operator just just about just dping now and i so i bought a proper you know a dji inspired uh, two drone got a proper license for that so i do drone filming for him when he wants me to just to really so i can sort of be around see him a bit having all my kids are in the film business and um, well pretty all of them are uh my two boys are and my daughter was uh, and my youngest boy is a writer and does uh, has just published his first novel. So um, moving around and doing stuff, I, I'm there, you know, to say I pass the baton over is not entirely right, but I guess I do live vicariously through my kids now. Their success is is just a joy. And if, but not to say if I get something, I'm not excited about it. But it's not. I don't have that same need to kind of cut through the shit anymore. You know, I would never have done an interview like I'm doing now, which is pretty indiscreet. Someone will probably shout at me, do I really care anymore? I don't really. Fuck them. Uh, the nice people. I mean, I can't say. Morgan Freeman, lovely man, good man. Uh, his producer, Laurie McCreary, excellent producer. Renny Zolga, really mad as a March hair. I love her dearly. She's a good friend and she's a wonderful actress. You know, so the plenty of people I really, I really respect and like and would love to work with again. And and I will always say how, how much I like them, but I'm not going to say any more because if I ever work again, I don't really care. Um, and frankly, um, you know, I think the bad people deserve it. The trouble with our business, no one ever said anything. You know, that, that if you're in, the, if you're still working and want to work, you're not meant to say the truth about things. It's sad, but it's the way it is. At least Harvey won't be offering me any more jobs, which is a relief. So I did. 
I developed two films with, or worked on two or three films with him and his brother, and that was um, talk about a baptism of fire, and I'm a bloke. Kind of thing. I guess he'll go. But um, he was quite mean. I never forget when he sent me for a, he sent me on one project in New York, which we never did. But the, I'd, I think I'd left the film, so or something had happened. And when he had to contractually send a car for me, this car arrived. It was so dirty and so filthy. When I went to put my suitcase in the trunk, it was full of old garden machinery. So I couldn't put my suitcase even in the trunk of the car because Harvey had decided that I wasn't going to get a proper car to take me to the airport. Fuck me. He contractually fulfilled his deal, but with a car that you wouldn't put, you know, you wouldn't put um, anyone in. There you go. Yeah, no, it was all good fun. Sorry if I haven't got um, – well, I guess you've got – you don't get such juicy stories usually, I'm sure, from – No, this was terrific. I'm so happy. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, there are good guys and bad guys, and maybe the bad guys should be called out these days. There you go. Well, all right. Well, lovely to talk to you. All right, Mike. Well, nice to talk to you, and um, we'll speak again in the next um, few days or week. Last but not least, we're going to hear from Ed Kamara, the screenwriter of Enemy Mine. There are a lot of people's names listed on Lady Hawk as far as the screenplay, the story, all this. How did you come well, into it? Was that your first foray into screenwriting? It was. It was my – well, I mean, it was my – I had written six or seven scripts before that, but it was the first one that I was able to sell. How did you decide that you wanted to be a screenwriter? I guess I knew since I was a kid that I wanted to be a, a writer. And at some point, uh, I re- decided I really wanted to make make film, make movies. I went to a UCLA film school. I specialized there in, in writing. And uh, it took off from there. I earned my MFA for fine arts and, in, you know, in theater with a specialty in screenwriting. What were those early scripts like for you? I still have them, I guess. Uh but I haven't referred to them in a long time. Um, you know, I, I went through all the usual stuff of getting an agent and trying to get an agent and, and having things turned down and everything that, uh, that people do. You know, I was young then. So, and Lady Hawk, I can tell, I can tell you a little interesting story if you want. When I knew I had something, my original version of Lady Hawk, the movie was, you know, rewritten and changed in some ways over time, but there was a place, this was before computers. And before you could print stuff out yourself. So you had to go to this place where they would uh, print, where they would type out these kind of mimeograph things. And then they would print out a number of scripts for you. And there was a place down the street from me called Barbara's Place where all people did. You walked in, it was a big room and there were just people sitting at desks in rows typing screenplays. And so I left this screenplay. That's all they did. I left the, the you know, my my typed original hand typed copy and they said all right well call us it'll be ready on friday and i said thanks and then so i call on friday coming friday and i ask uh, is it ready and this young woman answers and she says yeah the screenplay is ready she says but can we keep it till monday 
And I said, why? She said, some of us haven't read it yet. <laughs> they were circulating the script. There must have been something they liked there because, you know, that's, that, that I knew immediately I had something that, that would be different than the, than the rest of it and something that I'd be able to, uh, to option and sell. What was that original version like? How did that differ from what we saw on screen? It was a much tougher story, you know. In a way, it was almost a Bergman-esque story. Of, of the, it was a time in, in Paris when it was a very hard winter and the River Seine had frozen and wolves come, were coming in and eating the bodies that were hanging on the on the gibbets because so many people were being hanged. It was such a rough time. And over that, I overlaid this kind of fairy tale. The hero originally... You know, played by Matthew Broderick, the mouse, Philippe the mouse, was based on François Villon, the French poet, partly on a guy that had been my roommate when I lived in Paris for two years. And it was different in the sense that it started in Paris where this young thief had come up from the prison where he escaped, and he had left his own lady love, his little girlfriend in the prison, to find somebody to help him rescue her. And he finds the knight, and the knight finds him. And together they go back to rescue the girl and to just, you know, to kill the bishop so that the curse can be broken. And during that journey, he discovers, as he does in the movie, the relationship between the, you know, why the knight always has a hawk on his shoulder and, and, and the wolf and all of that stuff is pretty much the same as in the movie. The ending was very different because they felt that my original ending resembled a little bit the ending in Dragon Slayer. And that movie hadn't done well. Mankiewicz came up with the idea of the uh, of the eclipse, which I think is actually a very good idea. My original ending: there was a kind of a demon living in the in the the cellar of the prison, which had the bishop's soul, and you couldn't kill the the, the bishop's soul until you killed this demon. You couldn't kill the bishop till you killed the demon, and it was up to the mouse to go into the depths under the prison and kill the demon so ultimately it's his confrontation of good versus evil and not the knight as in the movie that was a really big film i remember that must have been quite a feather in your cap yeah it was a it was a, a great way to you know to start and then uh, enemy mind came out the same year so i had you know two movies out in in one year and that was uh it was pretty cool now with enemy mind was that your first time adapting a story it was the first one that was produced. I say that I'm not sure because I don't remember. I, I had a few assignments, little assignments in between, and I think they were actually rewrites. So, uh, so probably it was my first time of doing an adaptation. Yeah. So, what was that like for you? The one thing I do remember clearly is that I felt that the original um, story it didn't have an ending, and so a lot of stuff I had to invent. Uh, the miners and and the kidnapping of the child and everything had to invent to really to really give it a a complete story. And I remember I had a letter from from Barry Longyear, and he was very very pissed that the story was was being changed. For me, what, what I was pissed that you know, I, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but you know, I worked with two directors and forgot I don't know a year and a half or two years or whatever, and uh, and then at the very last moment. Because of uh, Barry Diller, the whole thing was edited in a totally back-to-front way from the way it had been written all those times. I don't know, probably 20 drafts. Yeah, the version I read, I think it's one of your early drafts, and it really has a flashback story structure. It starts with Davidge being found and then him 
telling the story to the other his other uh, soldiers. Right, and it was shot that way even after after Richard Longcrane with uh, Wolfgang Peterson. It was it was shot that way, and it was too long. And I remember they had a, a test screening of it. Barry Diller was saying something to to Peterson, and he was Peterson was really sweating it out literally. They decided they were going to recut the whole thing, and I I don't remember even how it's cut exactly. I when I look at it now probably shouldn't say this, but but the movie doesn't hold up for me. I mean, partly it doesn't hold up because of the dated way that it was shot and partly because the story doesn't have, for me, the the basic drive and kind of story rationality that was there before, in my opinion. Well, what was that like for you, working with Lon Crane and then that switch over to Peterson? I loved working with Richard. I was in London for quite a while working with him, and, and we really sort of collaborated and you know, and had a lot of discussions and it was back and forth and back and forth. And then I was with him in, in Iceland and the, 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 you know, the, the, the reckeys that we did going to Iceland and, and stuff. When we actually started shooting in Iceland, it was really a problem because the light is every 20 minutes and he had a great crew. And I think Richard had a really a wonderful vision for the whole, whole story. I mean, he's, He's really an artist, but kept falling behind behind schedule. And the the, the line producer um, Stanley O'Toole and Richard called him the Smiling Cobra. He really liked him, and uh, they didn't get along. And one day, and O'Toole came to me. He said, "Look, we're falling behind budget. Can you look and see where things could be cut from the story and so on, and pitch it to Richard and see if he'd go along with it?" And I I tried. Richard, no, he wanted. He didn't want to do that. And then, uh, shortly after that, the production was, you know, the, was pulled and came to a stop. And it was it was pretty traumatic. I think I really feel like like Richard had a passion for this story and a vision, and that was very disappointing to me. Do you remember how much or how long you were actually in Iceland doing the the first shooting? maybe two weeks, maybe more. I mean, because there was a reconnaissance where we went to Iceland just to go over all the uh, locations and so on. And then I think we came back and I probably came back to California and then I went out again. I mean, it was over, it was over a long period of time. It, w- it was really in the, in the hands of the director, you know, the producer we have, a guy named Stephen Friedman. He was not a bad guy at all. I think he was a good guy, but he just really kind of was at sea. And he, you know, when it came to filmmaking, I remember when I put in the screenplay at first, we see this huge space station. He said, don't put in huge. Says, that looks expensive. <laughs> going to be a model. He says, yeah, but don't put that word in. That scares him. I mean, you know, he was essentially a very awkward guy. He passed on since he's deceased. But but as a human being, I'm thinking he, he, you know, he was a, really a very tender person, but he he was in over his depths and people hated him in a way because he made production so difficult for people, you know, for, he got quite a few productions going, but nobody wanted to work with him. And I think that was part of the whole thing with Richard too. I mean, I can't speak for him, but I think he was frustrated with Steve Friedman. What was it like for you when Peterson came in? It was okay. I mean, you know, it was a whole different thing. Everything started over. Everything started over. And uh, he was at the uh, Bavaria studios 
And we would sit up there on the second floor and write draft after draft, because at that time, the 20th Century Fox was going through a lot of executive changes. And every time there'd be an executive change, that person would make a couple of suggestions and we would uh, we would write another uh, write another draft. And Steve Friedman would come to do his part. <laughs> he would he would come in on a on a flight from Los Angeles and he would sit down and immediately fall asleep. There we were, the two of us and Steve Friedman just snoring away. That was quite an adventure there. I mean, I liked Germany. I liked uh, the Munich. Yeah, it was in Munich. And, you know, it was a beautiful springtime in Munich. And we would go to the beer gardens in the spring. And it was, it was, it was very nice. It was fun. I know some screenwriters where once they have turned in that final draft, they're not even invited to set. So it must have been so interesting for you to actually be such a part of production. It was, and that was the only time I was. I mean, you know, in Lady Hawk, I was never invited to the sets, and I was never invited to work on it again, although they would call me, and they would say, we're trying to do this and this and this, and I, you know, especially one scene, I'm getting back to Lady Hawk for a moment, but uh, you, you remember there's a scene where, where she falls off the tower and turns into a hawk in midair? They called me, and they said, how do we, we want to have her change in midair, but we don't know how to do it, you know, what's your thought, and you know, if she if she changes into a, from a hawk to a woman, she'll just fall to her death. And I said, well, just have her change from a woman to a hawk. Well, how do we get her up in the air? So we'll have her fall off something like a tower. And it's, oh, okay, great. And then they put that in, but that was never part of any of my drafts. Nevertheless, I you know I still got a first position screenplay credit and a story credit, so I can't complain too much. After Enemy Mine, there's a gap in your CV. And I know with screenwriters, it's always tough because you're probably constantly writing, but it's just a matter of like getting that credit or getting stuff actually made. So after Enemy Mine, what did you work on? Well, I worked on, on one thing that I really loved. It was a, a, a biographical story of Jack London and his second marriage to a woman named Charmian Kittredge, which was a real, I think a real kind of a tragic love story. And uh, did that for uh or uh, I think her name was Paula Wagner. She was partners with Tom Cruise. It was done for him. It was never made. I worked on a, it was going to be for Redford. And uh, I made my deal with the studio. And then he pulled out before his deal was ever made. And it was a thing called The Love Hunter, an adaptation of a novel. Again, it was a, a very emotional kind of a story. Uh, unfortunately, this is one of those things that screenwriters just kind of go berserk because it was about, the story of a relationship of two men, both in love with a woman. One of them, the main character, is basically dying of multiple sclerosis. And uh, I wrote a script, and somehow somebody, at, a friend of mine there at 20th, it was also at 20th, he showed me the coverage for it, and the coverage was raving about it. You know, this is Academy Award material, blah, blah, blah. And I come in, and the producer's all downcast, and, and his assistant, and I say, what's wrong? And they say, well, this is, you know, the guy is sick. We can't do a movie about a guy that's sick. And I'm thinking, but you knew that this was what it was about. You know, you knew what was it about. He said, well, if we're going to do a story about a guy that's sick, they can't know he's sick until the end. Anyway, it all failed because it was really about a guy that was sick. And it was about how he dealt with his illness and how he triumphed over it at the end, morally and spiritually. And that would have been a great movie, too. But Ken Sabe. So how did you get involved with Dragon, the Bruce Lee story? Rob Cohen was then working with an, as a producer with another director, John 
oh gosh, his sister was in uh, in the thing with Gregory Peck about To Kill a Mockingbird. What was that little girl's last name? He was a director at that time. I can't, his name's not coming to me right now. And Rob Cohen had wanted to get involved with Enemy Mine. And so he liked, you know, my version, one of the versions that he'd read of that script. And so he called on me to work on, on, on Dragon the Bruce Lee story. I know that Robert Klaus gets credit for having it be a, a book. Hey, and uh, Linda Lee Caldwell, but I'm curious, how did you take that and actually turn it into screenplay form, taking a person's life and turning it into a three act story? Well, first of all, the movie as it is, is very different than my screenplay. Very different. And I did a lot of personal research. You know, I spent a long time in Hong Kong. I met Bruce Lee's brother, who was a co-director of the Hong Kong Observatory. I met a lot of the people that had worked with him uh, in the films. Of course, all you know, the, one of them was a production manager. Another guy was this actor, Bolo Yang, that, uh, you know, there's in the final fight of Enter the Dragon. You know, and he's been in a lot of the Van Damme movies. And, the, the you know, as life is full of these strange coincidences. I was, uh, my kids were small then, and I would, drive them and the neighbor's kids to school one day and then my neighbor would drive the kids to the another day so sometimes we'd meet for breakfast afterwards and and his name was gil hubs and one time he asked me what are you working on and i said you know dragging the bruce lee story and he said oh you know i was the director of photography on that movie i got a lot of information there and it was always people trying to tell me all the stories i heard about how he died. And I also knew a lot of martial artists at that time. I was into martial arts myself a little bit. And everybody had their own stories and their own kind of look at him. So what I wrote for that screenplay, I think, was a much, much tougher screenplay, much closer to his life as it as it actually happened. And the one thing that I that I really created there, I think, is I took three women that were crucial in his life, apart from his wife, Linda Lee, I took three Asian women, one that was Japanese and two that were Chinese, and I combined them all into one person. And I tried thematically to base it on that he was being called home, you know, that China, Hong Kong was calling him and that he couldn't really make it artistically or as a, as a, as a, as an actor. He couldn't make it until he gave in and came back to Hong Kong. And that the great irony of his life was that he, he became a star after he died. People don't realize that, you know, he was uh, the sidekick to the Green Lantern or whatever it was, you know, in California. And then uh, after, you know, entered the Dragon Open, I think he died very shortly after that. And I had a, a very good guide at Hong Kong, too, that knew all the people. And so I was able to really get a sense of, of, of who this guy was, hopefully. But none of that really is in the movie. The movie's worked in a way, you know, but it was kind of, they made him, he was a, an obsessive guy, obsessive, obsessive with his physicality. And he wanted more than anything to be a big star. There was a scene in uh, Klaus's book, which I put into the movie where he's outside of Steve McQueen's house, shaking his fist at the house and screaming, I'll be a bigger star than you someday. They took all of that stuff out. That's got to be so frustrating. It, it is, and then you know, but you learn you learn to live with it. I mean, I, I kind of liked the movie, but it was not. It was a fun movie. It was a kids' movie, basically. It was not in any way Bruce Lee, but it was good. I, I really don't believe he was. I don't really believe he was that guy. And I have still the VHS somewhere that Linda Lee gave me of him uh, 
the exercises and stuff from, uh, that he would do with his students behind his house. You see a very a very different Bruce Lee. You see a guy kicking the bag and his glasses fly off. <laughs> you know, and he's and, and and Brandon Lee and the other and his his daughter is running around and and he's holding these things that that they kick and, and he's saying you know kick it kick the little Chinaman he, he himself being the little Chinaman you know a very human a very human view of of him. How did you get into acting? If you look up Grigori spelled with an I at the end, and my last name spelled C H. Instead of K.H., you'll find Grigory Kamara, who was my uncle and uh, was from the, uh, the Stanislavski Theater and later became a movie star in, uh, in Berlin in, in the silent movies. Um, look it up on the Internet. You'll see a lot of pictures. He played, he played Jesus. He played in uh, Crime and Punishment uh, by Robert Wiener, who, who directed the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He had really a wonderful career and I'd had to leave uh, Berlin, you know, when the Nazis came because he was, he was Jewish. And then by that time when sound came in, then he, he was in Paris by that time and he could only play foreigners because he, whether he spoke German or French, it was always with a Russian accent, you know? So well, my father did a little bit of acting. He was kind of a bit player in the, in, in the movies. He was always a gypsy or a Mexican or a, a, a Spaniard or something like that. Cause they all looked very almost Hispanic. So that was always, you know, and the Russians, because I grew up in the, the Russian community in Los Angeles, they did whatever they could do to survive. And, you know, they could be flipping hamburgers one day and, and working in, you know, on a set the next day. One of the people that was part of that community, there was a close friend of my family, just a wonderful guy. His name was Leonid Kinsky. And his one visible role, he played a lot of things in movies, but his one visible role was the bartender in Casablanca, Sasha the bartender. And I once asked him, you know, when you were making Casablanca, did, did, did you know you were making a classic film? And he laughed and he said, said, we came to work. He said, I didn't even know what soundstage they would send me to. Then I did a little bit of acting in, in high school and stuff. And that was something originally that I wanted to do, but, uh, I never did very much of it, and I was never very good at it. Now I'm at an age where I can't even remember lines, so I don't try. Are you still working? or Because I know sometimes uh, when I talk to writers, they never stop writing. I have not stopped writing. I've got two screenplays ready to go. Unfortunately, this whole – I have the same, had the same agent that, that I had when I did Lady Hawk. I've been through a lot of different agents in between. You know, that that whole thing where we're forced to boycott our agent with the Writers Guild. I don't know how much you're aware of that. It just put a big stop to everything. But I've got to figure out how to get representation now. I've got two, I think, pretty good screenplays. Um, I've tried for a long time to get, well, that's a whole other story. I won't get into this other story. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not young. I'm 76 years old. But, uh, yeah, I want to keep working. I want to, I'm writing a novel, you know. Life is about getting things, you know, doing something, waking up with a reason to get up. Mr. Kamara, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, please call me Ed. Look up uh, Grigori. I did. Uh, I'm amazed at these credits. This is crazy. 55 credits, and I am I think I've actually seen a couple of these movies. The uh, Lupin versus Lupin from 62. I, I was going through an Arsene Lupin phase a few years ago and trying to find yeah. as many of these as I could. Yeah, and when I, I lived in Paris for a couple of years, and I would go over to, and he was an old man by that time, and 
he lived, I think, really into his 90s. He wouldn't say how old he was, but I'd go over to his house and, and he would try to, try to, first of all, try to improve my Russian, you know, my, my Russians give me a better pronunciation and supposedly give me acting lessons. Although it all kind of got into his stories about being in the Stanislavski Theater and Gordon Craig and Isadora Duncan and Olga Knipper and all just wonderful, wonderful stories. And Stanislavski himself and all of that, you know, it was a wonderful time in my life and very inspiring. Yeah, someday I'll be able to write about that. Welcome back. We are talking about Enemy Mine. And Tim Corrin, I have to ask you, did you guys listen to that interview with Richard Longcrane? Oh, it's amazing. I wanted to talk about that really quick. Oh, he is so salty. (laughs) I and and we had a couple files, one that um that you'd sent along and I thought maybe we'd have that second part of his interview. Did you ever get that? Did you ever get the interview of I finished watching the movie and now I will tell you how much I hate it? No, I, I oh. totally forgot that I needed to do that. Oh, oh my God. My God. It, it, I was so excited because I was like, oh, yes, please spend two hours telling me how much you hate this movie. <laughs> it's like every time you kept bringing up somebody else, it's like, oh, they were terrible. I oh, hate they them. were awful. <laughs> uh, I don't like them. Oh, I never saw the movie. It's like, okay. Okay, you're just salty. <laughs> We're fans of his Richard III, and I, I just want to know what was happening on that set if he had that kind of attitude then. <laughs> oh, Jim Broadbent. Oh, he's terrible. Awful. <laughs> who, is, who is he again? McKellen, yeah, I worked with him on the script and, and on the play. Terrible, awful person. <laughs> well, we actually did an episode on Richard III, so we get we talked to him on that. And, oh, uh, oh, I got to listen to he, that He had great time. He had okay. a great time on that. He has been such a wonderful man to just like, because when we talked to him originally for The Haunting of Julia, mm. and he was just like, yep, yeah, had a great time talking about this, blah, blah, blah. And so then when we did Richard the Third, it's like, hey, would you mind coming on? Oh, yeah, no problem. Even when we first started talking about The Haunting of Julia, I was like, I really want to ask you about Enemy Mind, but we're going to do an episode on that. And is it okay if I contact you again? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'm glad how salty he was. I know. It's, it, it makes for such an interesting interview on top of the fact that he's not, you know, he's not giving you a line. This isn't just some glossy answer. He's telling you how he really feels. And, uh, as a, as a film fan, I appreciate that. We immediately went hunting for that YouTube series he was talking about doing because we're like, Oh, we want more. We need more. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not sure it's out yet. So that's sad. When we spoke, it was pre-corona, so I don't know what's been going on. Mm. Mm. 
I hope he's okay. Yeah, that's that's the thing. These days, it's like all the the old elder statesmen yeah. of film is like, are they all right? Well, there's always that. I haven't heard from this person in a while. I better check in and make sure they're okay thing right now. Hearing the raw interviews is amazing, though, that, you know, wait, I have a liver pie cooking. Hang on one second. <laughs> Just being able to hear him bang around the kitchen. In the I have background. another phone call. We were worried, like, did he forget he was on the phone with you? Or? I know. <laughs> I like when they're that comfortable, though. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Or uh, I think it was Barry Long. You're taking his dog out to do yeah. his business. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Longyear was fantastic. I was so glad when he was just like, it was fucking this, that. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> when, when you brought up the mine thing, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> A fucking mine? He was so upset. And I can't blame him. And it's very funny. A mine. <laughs> you know, the title. To hear those interviews and then go back and read the puff pieces that were written about him. <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah. oh, yeah, well, of course, this makes so much sense. Or just like Lon Crane was so restrained in those interviews. And now at this age, he's just like, oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> yes. And I love it. I, I love that humans get to a certain age and they're like, eh, this doesn't even matter. Whatever. You're a jerk. I'm 73. Get off my lawn. I'm going to die soon anyway. Here. I know. <laughs> this is what I really think. And these days where he's like, I don't know if this guy's alive or dead, but I'm going to talk about it. I don't care. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. There was that one. Can you get sued for bad mouthing somebody that's already dead? <laughs> amazing. That whole anecdote about peeing in the snow. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> of course he got fired. Oh, I'm glad you guys got a chance to listen to those because sometimes people oh, are just like, great. oh, you talk to him. Oh, OK. Oh, no. Oh, no. no we was, that was great. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. Yeah. He, he just pulled out all the stops. Kamara. I'm very surprised that he didn't have a longer career because it was just like a couple films and then he was out. Yeah, yeah, that is surprising, especially Lady Hawk being the hit that it was. Even mm. if his script had been tampered with, you'd figure it would still give him a little bit more. Uh, some leverage. Yeah, some leverage yeah. in Hollywood. I'm not sure why it he didn't go on to do a lot more. I don't know. Is it one of those things where this movie, because of what a bomb it was, kind of hung around his neck like an albatross? I That's don't know. possible. It's, yeah, yeah. Blame the writer. That's where. <laughs> blame the marketing and blame the writer. Well, it sounds like his dragon, the Bruce Lee story, was vastly different. Yeah. I'd be yeah. very curious to read that. I mean, it sounds like he really took a lot of pride in his script for that. This sounds like he did a ton of research, and then what they ended up with. And I, I'll be honest, I like Dragon the Bruce Lee story a lot. It's not necessarily one I go back to, but I remember seeing it in the theater in '93 and just being like, "Oh wow, yeah, this is great." This Jason Lee guy, he's got you know Hitmaker written all over him. You I saw it. it. It's yeah. pretty good. It's like a lot of Rob Cohen movies. Like, yeah, it's fine. I enjoy it. <laughs> and yeah, Jason Lee was really good. I love that uh, Stephen Summers Jungle Book he was in. I thought that was terrific. I, I'm kind of disappointed that doesn't get more attention. But yeah, I don't I, that anecdote he told about trying to adapt that story about the the love triangle and one of them is dying and like, well, we can't have him dying. I just met that's such a perfect studio note. We can't have a person dying on screen. It wouldn't be popular. <laughs> Can he just be dying at the end? I did want to bring up how this movie bombed and maybe some of the reasons why it bombed. Yes, the marketing campaign got a lot of the the blame for that. But I do feel like you have to look at what was going on around that time in science fiction and just movies in general. So you had all these Star Wars style movies coming out from 1977 on. And I feel like there was a lot of oversaturation with that. I mean, you got like Star Crash, Last Starfighter. Um, hang on, I have a whole list here. <laughs> 
I'm going to mention it again. I'd even put Krull in there. We've got spaceships. Yeah, no, Krull, definitely. But uh, also... Uh, That'll be on the stars, Black Hole, uh, Space Raiders. Uh, even Dune, I think, is kind of going after the, the Star Wars um, money a little. What is that movie that we haven't seen that I forced you to buy? Space film. Ice Pirates. Yes, Ice Pirates. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I think it's interesting if you look at the science fiction films that were popular that year, say like Back to the Future and Cocoon, there are movies that aren't set in the future. They're contemporary with characters that I feel like audiences could have related to a little bit more. It's the boy next door. It's the old couple down the street, that sort of thing. Even Last Starfighter, which is a space movie, but you know was pretty successful. It's the kid in the trailer park. I feel like audiences were having trouble kind of relating to futuristic stories, you know, set on distant planets far, far kind of removed from their zone of experience. Well, we've really settled into Reagan-era America at that point. So I think when it came to f- movies people wanted to see, they wanted to be able to relate to the humanness and in some way show that they have conformed, but at the same time, there's the potential for more. That's the other point, the, the politics of that era, definitely, mm-hmm. where I don't think audiences were really interested in kind of sympathizing with the enemy at that point. I mean, again, you look at the popular movies that year, and most people just wanted to see Sylvester T- Stallone beating up Russians, either in the ring with Rocky Four or in the jungle with Rambo. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there was as much call for, oh, we want to sympathize with the enemy. Or cooperate. And, and enemy mine is definitely learning to cooperate. And I do think it's interesting looking at this in the context of Reagan and his Star Wars program, that strategic defense initiative, this idea of, well, the next step is we're going to militarize space. Space is going to be, you know, a battleground as well. And we see that sort of reflected in the beginning of this movie that, well, we made peace and we brought our wars up into space and found somebody else to go after instead. A space force, if you will. A force in space. Where we can have horses in space. Ooh, exciting space horses. Space cavalry. Nice. I, I never would have thought as a kid hearing that a president is going to create a space force, I'd be so disappointed. <laughs> as a kid, be like, yes, awesome. Uh, no, it's okay. I, I've been struggling a lot with uh, everything. <laughs> who I actually don't even need to say the name of because everybody knows. There's yeah. a horse in the <laughs> hospital. Yeah, I'm just looking at some of the Japanese posters for this. It's really interesting to see what uh, different countries emphasized. Of course, the German poster is just absolutely beautiful. I'd be curious to see what the Polish one looks like, because Polish sci-fi movie posters are always the most bizarre Mm. and cool looking. Yeah, especially in this era, but this in, in the seventies, it was so good. Oh, the only thing that I think can top it is what the, um, what the Ghana poster. Oh, is it one of the painted ones that the, the, they keep showing, uh, you see them all over the internet for different movies and they're just random and bizarre. One other thing I do want to bring up is I'm actually going to mount a slight defense for the presence of the mine in the movie. Are you? I am. I almost feel like, where Davidge is at this point in the movie, you do have to have a scene where he actually does confront what he was, confront the kind of racist personnel person he was at the beginning of the film, and to have him actually ha- forced to physically confront these guys that at the beginning of the movie, he probably would have looked at them and went, eh, fine, whatever. They're abusing these guys. Doesn't matter to me. Fine. Let them make their buck. I think it it is 
really important for his character to have that arc to see him physically and emotionally confront that. And also, I do like that theme of when it comes to racism, what are we going to do? We're going to exploit people and make money off of some uh, oppressed minority or oppressed group. So, of course, yeah, they're going to enslave these guys and use them for, you know, for labor and make some money. That to me is it's kind of part and parcel with racism. You do have to kind of show that, I feel. While I agree with you. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like we could have gotten his confrontation with humanity when he gets back onto the ship and is confronted with the racism of his fellow officers, perhaps. We didn't need the mine itself. We could have been told in passing or something, you know, that he gets shocked by it, that there are, they're being enslaved in one way or another, we don't need to see it. I agree that it's great it's there, but it doesn't need to be. Okay. We can get the same point across otherwise. Not to play armchair screenwriter, one yes, way I can. think <laughs> they could have done it is to have him actually be forced to be in a dogfight with the other BTA uh, people. He like he steals the ship, they come after him, he's forced to shoot them down, fly back to Firing 4, find Zamis, and then use that ship to take him to Dracon. And then you really get the sense that, wow, he now he really has no place among humanity either. The confrontation with his friends, the idea of them just showing up at the end is kind of strange for me. And it's bizarre. Yeah, it's like, no, these are the good guys, kind of, but they should be just as racist as he was at the beginning. It should be a real struggle for them to suddenly realize, oh, our friend is on their side, not on our side. Well, it's turned into a white savior trope at the end, and you can't have the allies of our hero be outright racist and awful at that point with, you know, the white savior stuff. I will say it's not as bad as it was in that original script that we read, where it's actually Davidge leading the Drax against the, the miners. It's like, come on, we're going to go get him. I like that. No, the miners kind of take the initiative and actually save Davidge. That's that works true. a lot better for me. And that um, the BTA people in the script, it's like, why are they all of a sudden, you know, yay, we're on the same team and they're on Dracon with uh, Davidge and Zombies? That made no sense to me. That they're just kind of... They're like, okay, wait, wait, we're, we're good guys. And the Drax are in control. They have all the guns. They're like, all right, you back off. That worked a lot better mm. for me too. If they had to be there, it's better that way. That is somewhat troublesome, the whole white savior thing, especially since the one Draco that for sure we know was played by an African American actor. I'm not sure if everybody else, all of those other Drax are African Americans or not, but for sure Lou Gossett, and so then it yeah, becomes plays right into that. I'm pretty yeah. sure Bumper Robinson was black as well. Uh, it's that, um troublesome. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty gross. We had uh, something similar happen in a, a fairly recent movie, The Last Tarzan with uh was it Fassbender? Uh it was um Skarsgard. 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 Uh at the very end, I mean, Tarzan has kind of fixed everything and everybody's okay and he has saved people. And then, you know, the, the natives of the area show up and just cheer him on. And it becomes like this massive white savior moment in an otherwise fantastic film. Yeah. Tarzan has always been a little like, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially some of those older Tarzan films where it just, yeah, really was a false note. Mm. It's pretty tough to get around it. I mean, it's kind of baked into the DNA of that one. Yeah. Yeah. I can't watch this movie and not think of, and probably because it was paired on a double feature DVD for a while, uh, Alien Nation with James Conn and Mandy Patinkin, where you had the oh, same yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. 
the racist cop who's teamed with the alien and grows to respect him and they work well together. Mm-hmm. And similar to that, uh, the, the cop, when it comes to what the case is about, it's much more important to the alien in that one than the cop until he kind of impresses on him. No, this is important. You have to, this is very important for you to get involved in this. And he kind of does bring him along to his side. And uh, District 9 is another one, definitely. Yes, absolutely. They're all uh, talking about different points in American history, apartheid or or uh, the Israeli-Palestinian experience or in enemy mine. I think we're, we're talking about a lot of this, a lot of stuff, like all of that and more. It's a, a nice way for sci-fi to address world issues. That is such the purpose of sci-fi so often is that you can just disguise things. And we've talked on this show a lot about, say, Czechoslovakian sci-fi stuff, where it's just like, yeah, you're not making fun of the communists that are putting their boots on your neck. You're just making fun of these aliens or whatever this weird situation is. This has nothing to do with real life. And that is so much what science fiction is great at. It's safe. It, it's safer to criticize within a disguise. It goes back to the Rod Serling thing. I can't put um, things on TV about racism and classism and sexism. I'll put it into science fiction and then I can slip it in that way. Yeah. Or even um, original track. I want to say for sure we talked about other things that were similar. You talked about Darmok and Jalad. And yeah, this is like such a thing that Star Trek would do. I want to say there was a Stargate episode that was similar. There have been other movies that have been made since this that are really playing with these same things. So I'm glad none of us are just saying, oh, this is a 100% original concept because <laughs> no. we're the farthest from that. No way. Um, but it's just, it's handled in a really good way here. It's as original as uh, opera. Uh, <laughs> an original idea by Dario Argento. <laughs> it's one of our running jokes when oh we first saw that. <laughs> It's the best. Have you seen opera? I have not. It's not original, (laughs) just as a spoiler. It's basically the Phantom of the Opera, but, you know, there's some jello blood and needles, but it's very, very uh, blatantly put in the beginning that uh, it's written out an original idea by Dario Argento, which, no, (laughs) no, sorry, Mr. Argento, no. I'm slowly making my way through his filmography, and unfortunately, it's kind of diminishing returns after a point. It, it gets a little repetitive. He he um he's limited, but I I do love what he does for uh, I'd say the big four, big mm-hmm. three movies, and uh, beyond that, it gets a bit much, a, a bit much. It gets <laughs> a lot much, especially when he starts, you know, using his daughter. Gets, oh yeah. yeah, that gets very weird. Yeah, and yeah. It's a story for a different time. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. All that work, all that pain, all that glitter, all that love, all that crazy rhythm, all that jazz. All that jazz, rated R. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Corinne and Tim Luz. How are you two holding up under the quarantine? We're managing. Tim is working from home. I'm out of work, so I'm a housewife. I'm a glorified trophy wife at the moment. I never knew I had such value. <laughs> but <Hey. laughs> but uh, we're managing. Lots of movies, 
lots of movies. Yep. So, I mean, it's it's hard for us with all the movies. Beyond that, we're managing. I keep saying that. Basically, we're holding on the edge of the cliff. Uh, I'm working on a new piece of writing. All work and no play makes Tim a dull boy. I yes. think it's going to be pretty successful. Uh, but we have been recording. We just had our 100th episode. We uh, did it in commentary style. We did The Shining, Kubrick's The Shining. Which was really intimidating, but uh, turned out surprisingly well. So we'll probably be doing those uh, more often in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Those are a lot of fun. And also just recorded Clue. We just did Clue. Yeah. I might have to get into the editing on that one. <laughs> and Tim has an upcoming spot. Where is it? On this show, actually. No, no, no. Oh. I mean, I mean uh, Knowles. Oh, uh, yeah. We're both going to be on uh, Schumacast before too long uh, discussing Veronica Guerin with Kate uh, Blanchett. That should be a good one. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so a lot coming up, which is a lot better than uh, the stuff going on worldwide <laughs> and politically. How are you handling the coronavirus issues? Well, I got the podcast, and that helps keep me sane. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I am absolutely sure. So where can people go to hear you guys talk about movies? Uh, you can look for us on our website, www.cinemaspection.com. Uh, we're also available on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Um um, we're on Twitter as well. I'm on at uh, Timosaurus R. Well, he's at Timosaurus R, and he's also at Cinemaspection. Um, I barely ever use Twitter, so I've decided to stop telling people my Twitter <laughs> handle because it's uh, you're better off contacting Tim if you want to say something to me. And honestly, he's she's my secretary. She's the healthier person for not being on Twitter. At this point, <laughs> I think. Corinne, are you just about TikTok? No, um, I I am. You won't loving, be for long anyway. I'm right. loving the TikTok controversy because. <laughs> We can absolutely force a country to sell a private company to another country. That makes a lot of sense. But no, I um, I need a break, a mental space from all of the yelling. And Twitter, I feel like, is a lot of noise. There's a lot of really wonderful stuff there. But I have trouble filtering that. So that's on me. I'm more about Instagram. Look some pictures. Me, I just keep focusing on, if you were a horror movie character, which one would you be? Kind of stuff on Twitter. Yeah, that's, trying to keep things light. Yeah. <laughs> that's about the most I can handle right now. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
Kenya now Just for old times sake But I think I'll wait Until my hands begin to shake My eyesight fades Your stench subsides And you to a lonely place I'll drive And I mean mine Cares in a time You gave up yours Cause I gave up mine enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.